Chapter 3, Orthodox Psychotherapy In developing the subject of Orthodox Psychotherapy, in this chapter we must see what the soul is and how it is healed. Secondly, what is the nature of the interrelationships of image, soul, noose, heart, and mind, and thirdly, how noose, heart, and mind thoughts are healed. I believe that these are the most important and essential topics for a knowledge of the inner purification and therapy of the soul, as well as for their attainment. Section 1. The Soul. Psyche. What the Soul is. The word soul is one of the most difficult words in the Bible and in Christian literature. Soul has many meanings in Holy Scripture and in patristic literature. Professor Christopher Yanaris says, The Septuagint translators of the Old Testament carried over into Greek with the word psyche, or soul, the Hebrew nephesh, a term with many meanings. Anything which has life is called a soul. Every animal, but more commonly within the scripture, it pertains to man. It signifies the way in which life is manifested in man. It does not just refer to one department of human existence, the spiritual in opposition to the material, but signifies the whole man as a single living hypostasis. The soul does not merely dwell in the body, but is expressed by the body, which itself, like the flesh or heat, or heart, excuse me, corresponds to our ego, to the way in which we realize life. A man is a soul, he is a human being, he is someone. The soul is not the cause of life, it is rather the bearer of life. Soul is the life which exists in every creature, as in plants and animals. Soul is the life that exists in man, and it is also every man who has life. Soul is also the life which is expressed within the spiritual element in our existence. It is that spiritual element in our existence. Since the term soul has many meanings, there are many places where things have not been clarified. In what follows, we shall try to look at some uses of the term psyche in the texts from the New Testament and the texts from the fathers of the church. The term is used by the Lord and the apostles to mean life. The angel of the Lord said to Yosef, who was betrothed to the mother of God, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the young child's life are dead. Matthew 2.20 The Lord, describing himself, said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. John 10.11 Likewise, the Apostle Paul, writing about Priscilla and Aquila, says they risked their own necks for my life. Romans 16.4 In these three cases, the term used for life is psyche. Psyche is used further, as we said, to indicate the spiritual element in our existence. We shall cite a few scriptural passages to confirm this. The Lord said to his disciples, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 10.28 Men 
cannot murder the soul, whereas the devil can, which means that if the soul is without the Holy Spirit, it is dead. The devil is a dead spirit, for he has no part in God, and he transmits death to those who join with him. He is a living entity, but he does not exist in relation to God. In the parable of the rich young man, the Lord says to him, You fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? Luke 12:20. The difference between soul psyche on the one hand as the spiritual element in human existence, which is mortal by nature but immortal by grace, and life psyche on the other hand appears also in another of Christ's teachings. Whoever cares for his own safety, psyche, is lost. But if a man will let himself, psyche, be lost for my sake, he will find his true self, psyche. Matthew 16.25 In one case, the Lord uses the term psyche to mean the spiritual element in our existence, and in the other case, it means life. In a letter to the Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul prays, May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 Here it is not a question of the so-called tripartite composition of man, but the term spirit is used to mean the grace of God, the charisma, which the soul receives. What we wish to point out here is that there is a distinction between soul and body. John the Evangelist writes in his Revelation, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Revelation 6.9 The body was slain, but the soul is close to God and is certainly in converse with God as the evangelist says in what follows. The word soul is also used to refer to the whole man. The Apostle Paul recommends, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. Romans 13.1 I believe that this little analysis demonstrates that the term psyche has many meanings in Scripture. The term is used to mean the whole man and the spiritual element in his existence as well as the life which exists in man, plants, and animals, in all things that participate in the life-giving energy of God. St. Gregory Palamas, speaking of the uncreated light, which comes to be in the God-bearing soul through the indwelling of God, says that this is God's energy and not his essence. And as the essence is called light, so also the energy is called light. The same is true of the soul. The spiritual life and the biological life are both called soul, but we are well aware that the spiritual and the biological are different. Just as the soul communicates life to the animated body, and we call this life soul, while realizing that the soul which is in us and which communicates life to the body is distinct from that life, so God, who dwells in the God-bearing soul, communicates the light to it. 
We have cited this passage of St. Gregory Palamas in order to show that the fathers are well aware that the term soul refers both to the spiritual element in our existence and to life itself, and that there is a great difference between the two meanings. We shall see this better later on, when we examine the difference between the souls of animals and of men. To attempt a definition of soul in the sense of the spiritual element in our existence, we turn to St. John of Damascus, who says, Now, a soul is a living substance, simple and incorporeal, of its own nature invisible to bodily eyes, using the body as an organ and giving it life endowed with will and the body, so is the mind to the soul. It is free, endowed with will and the power to act, and subject to change, that is, subject to change of will because it is also created. And this it has received according to nature, through that grace of the Creator, by which it has also received both its existence and its being naturally as it is. The soul is simple and good because created thus by its master. Almost the same definition as that of St. John of Damascus had in fact been given before him by St. Gregory of Nyssa. The soul is in essence created, living, and noetic, transmitting from itself to an organized and sentient body the power of living and of grasping objects of sense as long as a natural constitution capable of this holds together. St. Gregory Palamas, interpreting the Apostle Paul's The first man, Adam, became a living soul, 1 Corinthians 15.45, says that living soul means ever-living, immortal, which is to say intelligent, for the immortal is intelligent, and not only that, but also divinely blessed with grace. Such is the living soul. He says that the soul is immortal. We are well aware that this idea of immortality of the soul is not of Christian origin, but the Christians accepted it with several conditions and several necessary presuppositions. Professor John Ziziulas writes, The idea of the immortality of the soul, even though it is not of Christian origin, passed into the tradition of our church, permeating even this hymnography of ours. No one can deny it without finding himself outside the climate of the very worship of the Church. The Church did not accept this Platonic idea without conditions and presuppositions. These presuppositions include, among other things, three basic points. One is that souls are not eternal, but created. Another is that the soul should by no means be identified with man. In parentheses, man's soul is not man. The soul is one thing, and man, who is a psychosomatic being, is another. End of parentheses. And the third and most basic, the third and most important, is that the immortality of man is not based on the immortality of the soul, but on the resurrection of Christ and on the coming resurrection of bodies. We have emphasized that man's soul is immortal by grace and not by nature, and yet it must be stressed that in the orthodox patristic tradition, man's immortality 
is not the soul's life after death, but a passing over death by the grace of Christ. Life in Christ is what makes man immortal, for without life in Christ there is dying, since it is the grace of God that gives life to the soul. Having presented several elements that make up the definition of the soul, we must proceed a little further to the topic of the creation of the soul. The soul is created since it was made by God. Our basic source is the revelation which was given to Moses. The Lord God formed man of the dust and of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. Genesis 2.7 This passage describes the creation of man's soul. In his interpretation of it, St. John Chrysostom says that it is essential to look at what is said with the eyes of faith and that these things are said with much condescension and because of our weakness. The phrase, God made man and breathed into him, is unworthy of God, but Holy Scripture explains it in this way for our sake because of our weakness. Condescending to us so that being made worthy of this condescension we may have strength to rise to that height the way in which god formed man's body and made him a living soul as described in holy scripture is condescending it is described thus because of our own weakness saint john of damascus writes that whatever is said about god in human terms is said symbolically but has a higher sense since the divine is simple and formless. And since scripture says that God breathed into man's face, we may look at the interpretation by St. John of Damascus concerning the mouth of God. By his mouth and speech, let us understand the expression of his will, by analogy with our own expression of our innermost thoughts by mouth and speech. Certainly, mouth and breath are two different things, but I mention this as indicative since there is a relationship and a connection. Generally, as St. John of Damascus says, everything that has been affirmed of God in bodily terms, apart from what was said about the presence of the Word of God in the flesh, contains some hidden meaning which teaches us things that exceed our nature. Therefore, the soul, like the body, is created by God. St. John Chrysostom interprets this breath of God by saying that it is not only senseless but also out of place to say that what was breathed into Adam was the soul and that the soul was transmitted to the body from the substance of God. If this were true, then the soul would not be wise in one place and foolish and senseless in another, or just in one place and unjust in, other, in another. The substance of God is not divided or changed, but is unchangeable. So the divine breath was the energy of the Holy Spirit. As Christ said, receive the Holy Spirit. So also the divine breath, humanly heard, is the venerated and Holy Spirit. According to the saint, the soul is not a piece of God, but the energy of the Holy Spirit which created the soul without becoming soul itself. This spirit proceeded, it did not become soul, but created a soul. It did not change into a soul, but it created a soul. 
For the Holy Spirit is a creator. It has a share in the creation of the body and in the creation of the soul. For Father and Son and Holy Spirit by divine power create the creature. Another important point emphasized by the Holy Fathers is that we have no existence of the body without a soul, nor existence of a soul without a body. The moment God creates the body, he creates the soul too. St. Anastasios of Sinai writes, Neither does the body exist before the soul, nor the soul exist before the body. St. John of Damascus emphasizes in opposition to Origen's view, body and soul were formed at the same time, not one before and the other afterwards. St. John of the Latter says this as well. Man is made in the image of God. This image certainly does not refer to the body, but mainly and primarily to the soul. The image in man is stronger than that in the angels, for as we shall see, Man's soul gives life to the attached body. In general, we can say that the soul is in the image of God. And as God is threefold, nous, word, and spirit, so also man's soul has three powers, nous, soul, and spirit. In all nature, there are iconic examples of the Holy Trinity, but this appears mainly in man. The image in man is stronger than the image in the angels. St. Gregory Palamas, speaking of the baptism of Christ in the Jordan River and explaining why the mystery of the created and recreated man reveals the mystery of the Holy Trinity, writes that this came about not only because man alone is an initiate and earthly worshiper of the Holy Trinity, but also because he alone is in its image. The sentient and irrational animals have only a vital spirit, and this cannot exist of itself. They have no noose and word. The angels and archangels have noose and word, since they are noetic and intelligent, but they have no life-giving spirit, since they have no body which receives life from the spirit. So, since man has noose, word, and life-giving spirit that gives life to the body joined to it, he alone is in the image of the three-personal nature. St. Gregory Palamas develops the same teaching in his natural and theological chapters. As the Trinitarian God is nous, word, and spirit, so is man. Man's spirit, the life-giving power in his body, is man's noetic love. It is from the nous and the word, and it exists in the word and the nous, and possesses both the word and the noose within itself. While the noetic and rational nature of the angels has noose, word, and spirit, yet it does not have this spirit as life-giving. As we have indicated, the image refers primarily to the soul, but since the body is given life by the spirit, therefore the image in man is stronger than that in the angels. St. Gregory also sees the difference between the image of man and the image of the angels from another point of view. His teaching is well known that in God there is essence and energy, and these are connected separately and separately connected. Excuse me. And these are connected separately 
and separated connectedly. This is the mystery of the indivisible joining of essence and energy. The essence of God is not shared by man, while the energies are shared. And since man is in the image of God, this teaching about essence and energy applies to the soul as well. So the soul is inseparately divided into essence and energy. In comparing the soul of man with that of animals, St. Gregory says that animals possess a soul not as essence, but as an energy. The soul of each of the irrational animals is the life for the body it animates. And so animals possess life not essentially, but as an energy, since this life is dependent on something else and is not self-subsistent. Therefore, since the soul of animals has only energy, it dies with the body. By contrast, the soul of man has not only energy, but also essence. The soul possesses life not only as an activity, but also essentially, since it lives in its own right. For that reason, when the body passes away, the soul does not perish with it. It remains immortal. The intelligent and noetic soul is composite, but since its activity is directed towards something else, it does not naturally produce synthesis. In his teaching, St. Maximus the Confessor states that the soul has three powers. A. That of nourishment and growth. B. That of imagination and instinct. And C. That of intelligence and intellection. Plants share only in the first of these powers. Animals share in that of imagination and instinct as well, while men share all three powers. This shows the great value of man relative to irrational animals. Likewise, what was said previously shows clearly also how angels differ from men. Therefore, when Christ became man, he received a human body and not the form of an angel. He became God-man, theanthropost, not God-angel. What has been said makes it possible for us to see the dividedness of the soul. We do not intend to enlarge on this topic, but we shall present those things which have an essential bearing on the general topic of this study. St. John of Damascus says that the soul is intelligent and noetic. God gave man an intelligent and noetic soul for proper breathing. It is a basic teaching of the fathers that noose and intelligence are two parallel energies of the soul. St. Gregory Palamas, referring to the fact that the soul is in the image of the Holy Trinity and writing that the Holy Trinity is noose, word, and spirit, says that the soul created by God in his image is endowed with noose, word, and spirit. Therefore, she must guard her order, relate entirely to God. She must look at God alone, adorn herself with constant memory and contemplation and with the warmest and ardent love for him. The soul is broken up by passions and sins. Therefore, it must be unified, offered to God. Unification takes place in many ways, mainly by putting Christ's word into practice. Theoleptos, Metropolitan of Philadelphia, emphasizes particularly the value of prayer. Pure prayer after uniting in itself noose, word, and spirit 
invokes the name of God in words, looks up at God whom it is invoking with a noose free from wandering and shows contrition, humility, and love. Thus it inclines towards itself the eternal Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God. With the word, we constantly remember the name of Christ. With a noose, free from wandering, we gaze at God. And with the Spirit, we are possessed of contrition, humility, and love. In this way, the three powers of the soul are united and offered to the Holy Trinity. This is how the healing of the soul takes place, and we shall deal with it at greater length elsewhere. The scattering of the powers of the soul is sickness, and their unification is healing. Nicetus Stathatos divides the soul into three parts, but speaks mainly of two, the intelligent and passable parts. The intelligent part is invisible and unrelated to the senses, as if existing both within and outside them. I think that he is referring to the noose here. Later we shall distinguish between intelligence and noose, but now we must emphasize that the noose has a relationship with God, it receives the energies of God. God reveals himself to the noose, while intelligence as an energy is that which formulates and expresses the experiences of the noose. The passable part of the soul is divided into the sensations and the passions. The passable part is so called because it is subject to the passions. St. Gregory of Sinai, analyzing the powers of the soul and describing precisely what takes hold in each power, says that evil thoughts work in the intelligent part, bestial passions in the excitable part, recollection of animal lusts in the appetitive part, fantasies in the noetic part, and notions in the reasoning part. The same saint says that when, by his life-giving breath, God created the intelligent and noetic soul, he did not make it have rage and animal lust. He endowed the soul only with the appetitive power and with the courage to be lovingly attracted. With the creation of the soul, neither lust nor anger was included in its being. These came as a result of sin. Here we shall not develop further the subject of the divided soul, because the relevant material is described in the fourth chapter, which deals with the passions. We had to include a little about the soul's dividedness at this point because we are on the particular subject of the soul. Yet there does exist a relationship and a connection between the soul and the body. But what is this relationship and to what extent does it exist? It is a topic which we shall look at here. Man is made up of body and soul. Each element alone does not constitute a man. St. Justin, the philosopher and martyr, says that the soul by itself is not a man, but is called a man's soul. In the same way, the body is not called a man, but is called a man's body. Though in himself man is neither of these, the combination of the two is called man. God called man into life and resurrection, and he did not call a part, but the whole, which is the soul and the body. The soul as we have pointed out, was created with the body at conception. 
The embryo is endowed with a soul at conception. The soul is created at conception, and the soul at that time is just as active as the flesh. As the body grows, so the soul increasingly manifests its energies. There is a clear distinction between soul and body, since the soul is not body but bodiless. Besides, it is altogether impossible for the body and soul to exist or be called body or soul unrelated to and independent of each other, for the relationship is fixed. The ancient philosophers believed that the soul is at a specific place in the body, that the body is the prison of the soul, and that the salvation of the soul is its release from the body. The fathers teach that the soul is everywhere in the body. St. Gregory Palamas says that the angels and the soul as incorporeal beings are not located in place, but neither are they everywhere. The soul, as it sustains the body together with what with which it was created, is everywhere in the body, not as in a place, nor as if it were encompassed, but as sustaining, encompassing, and giving life to it, because it possesses this too in the image of God. The same saint, seeing that there are some people, the Hellenizers, who locate the soul in the brain, as in an acropolis, and that others place it at the very center of the heart, and in that element therein, which is purified of the breath of animal soul. As the most genuine vehicle, Judaizers, says that we know precisely that the intelligent part is in the heart, not as in a container, for it is incorporeal, nor is it outside the heart, since it is conjoined. The heart of man is the controlling organ, the throne of grace, according to St. Gregory Palamas. The noose and all the thoughts of the soul are to be found there. The saint affirms that we received this teaching from Christ himself, who is man's maker. He reminds us of Christ's sayings, It is not what goes into a man's mouth that defiles him, but what comes out of it. Matthew 15:11. And for out of the heart proceed evil thoughts. Matthew 15:19. The saint adds further that St. Macario said, The heart directs the entire organism, and when grace gains possession of the heart, it reigns over all the thoughts and all the members, for it is there in the heart that the noose and the soul have their seat. Therefore, the basic aim of therapy, he says, is to bring back the noose, which has been dissipated abroad by the senses from outside the heart, which is the seat of thoughts and the first intelligent organ of the body. We shall return to this subject, but what we mainly wish to underline is that according to the teaching of the fathers, the soul uses the heart as its organ and directs the body. The soul is in union with the body, but is no stranger to it. Nemesius of Emesa teaches that the soul is incorporeal and not circumscribed to a particular portion of space, but spreading entire throughout, like a sun that spreads wherever its light reaches as well as throughout the body of the sun not being just a part of the whole that it illuminates, as would be the case if it were not omnipresent in it. Furthermore, the soul is united to the body and yet remains distinct from it. 
the soul activates and directs the whole body and all the members of the body. It is a teaching of the Orthodox Church that God directs the world personally without created intermediaries by his uncreated energy. Thus, just as God activates the whole of nature in the same way the soul too activates the members of the body and moves each member in conformance with the operation of that member. Therefore, just as it is God's task to administer the world, so also it is the soul's task to guide the body. St. Gregory Palamas, who drew up much upon the theme of the relationship between soul and body, says that what takes place through God takes place through the soul. The soul has within it simple form, all the providential powers of the body. And even if some members of the body are injured, if the eyes are removed and the ears deafened, the soul is in no less possessed of the providential powers of the body. The soul is not the providential powers, but it has providential powers. In spite of the presence in it of the providential powers, it is single and simple and not composite, not compound or synthetic. It is very characteristic in this passage, St. Gregory links what takes place through the soul in relation to the body with God's relation to the whole of creation. God directs the world with his providential powers. God had the providential powers even before the world was created. Yet God, who not only possesses many powers, but is all-powerful, is not deprived of his unicity and simplicity because of the powers that are in him. This shows clearly that the soul is in the image of God. What takes place in God takes place analogously in the soul of man. St. Gregory of Nyssa says that the soul is immaterial and bodiless, working and moving in a way corresponding to its peculiar nature and evincing these peculiar emotions through the organs of the body. The same saint epigrammatically teaches that the soul is not held by the body but holds the body. It is not within the body as in a vessel or bag, but rather the body is within the soul. The soul is throughout the body, and there is no part illuminated by it in which it is not wholly present. The general conclusion with reference to the relationship between soul and body is that the soul is in the whole body, there is no sector of a man's body in which the soul is not present, that the heart is the first intelligent seat of the soul, that the center of the soul is there, not as in a vessel, but as in an organ which guides the whole body, and that the soul, while distinct from the body, is nevertheless most intimately linked with it. All these things have been said because they are very closely connected with the subject of this study, for we cannot understand the fall and sickness of the soul if we do not know just what the soul is and how it is linked with the body. Chapter 3, Orthodox Psychotherapy, Section 1, The Soul, Sickness and Dying of the Soul. In church we often speak of the fall of man and the death which came as a result of the fall. Spiritual death came first and bodily death followed. 
the soul lost the uncreated grace of God. The noose ceased to have a relationship with God and was darkened. It transmitted this darkening and dying to the body. According to St. Gregory of Sinai, man's body was created incorruptible and such will be resurrected, and the soul was created dispassionate. Since there was a very tenacious link between soul and body because of their inter interpenetration and communication, both were corrupted. The soul acquired the qualities of the passions, or rather of the demons, and the body became like irrational beasts due to the condition into which it fell in the pre prevalence of corruption. Since the soul and body were corrupted, they formed one animal being, unreasoning and senseless, subject to anger and lust. This is how, according to the scriptures, man became joined to the beasts and like them. Through the fall, man's soul filled with passions, his body became like the beasts. Man wore the skin garments of decay and mortality and became like irrational animals. This sickness, bondage, impurity, and dying of the soul is admirably described in the patristic works. Every sin is a repetition of Adam's sin, and with every sin we undergo the darkening and dying of, a fall, of the fallen soul. Let us take a closer look at these fallen states of the soul. When man leaves his senses free and through the senses, his noose pours out of his heart, then his soul is taken captive. The unloosing of the senses lays fetters on the soul. This bondage is equivalent to darkening. The setting of the sun creates night, and when Christ withdraws from the soul and the darkness of the passions lay hold of it, then the immaterial beasts tear it to pieces. Man's soul falls into impenetrable darkness, and the demons work on him. He finds himself in a moonless night. This also constitutes the soul's disease. St. Thalassios says, The soul's disease is an evil disposition, while its death is sin put into action. The ailing soul is led step by step to death. Actually, the soul's disease is its impurity. Impurity of soul lies in its not functioning in accordance with nature. It is because of this that impassioned thoughts are produced in the intellect. According to St. Maximus, a soul filled with thoughts of sensual desire and hatred is unpurified. Hezekius the priest describes the way in which the soul sickens and is finally killed. God created the soul simple and good, but it delights in the provocations of the devil, and once deceived, it pursues something sinister as though it were good. In this way, its thoughts become entwined in the fantasy provoked by the devil. Then the soul assents to the provocation and to its own condemnation tries to turn this unlawful mental fantasy into a concrete action by means of the body. St. Gregory Palamas, citing passages from Scripture, such as the Apostle's words, Even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ, Ephesians 2.5. The words of John the Evangelist, 
There is sin leading to death, 1 John 5.16, and Christ's words to his disciple, let the dead bury their own dead, Matthew 8.22, says that although the soul is immortal by grace, nevertheless, when dissipated, abandoned to pleasures, and self-indulgent, it is dead even while it lives. This is the way he interprets the Apostle Paul's words, she the widow who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. 1 Timothy 5.6 Although the soul is alive, it is dead, since it has not the true life, which is the grace of God. When our ancestors withdrew from the remembrance and theoria of God and disregarded his command and took the side of the deathly spirit of Satan, they were stripped of the luminous and living raiment of the supernal radiance, and they too, alas, became dead in spirit like Satan. This is how it always goes. When someone joins with Satan and does his own will, his soul dies, because Satan is not only a deathly spirit, but he also brings death upon those who draw near to him. When the soul is not working according to nature, it is dead. When it is not healthy, though it retains a semblance of life, it is dead. When, for instance, it has no care for virtue, but is rapacious and transgresses the law, whence can I tell you that you have a soul? Because you walk, but this belongs to the irrational creatures as well. Because you eat and drink, but this too belongs to the wild beasts. Well then, because you stand upright on two feet, This convinces me rather that you are a beast in human form. In the teaching of the Apostle Paul, the dead man is called carnal or unspiritual. In his letter to the Corinthians, he writes, The unspiritual man does not receive the gifts of the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 2.14 He also writes, While there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men, 1 Corinthians 3.3. According to Professor John Romanides, the words used for unspiritual and carnal and behaving like mere men have the same meaning. In another place in his book, he writes, The carnal and unspiritual man is the whole man, soul, and body who lacks that energy of the Holy Spirit which renders one incorruptible. When a man does not follow the Spirit, he is deprived of God's life-giving energy and is rendered unspiritual. Chapter 3, Orthodox Psychotherapy, Section 1, The Soul and the Therapy of the Soul. The whole tradition of the Orthodox Church consists in healing and bringing to life the soul which is dead from sin. All the sacraments and the whole ascetic life of the church contribute to this healing. Anyone who is not aware of this fact is unable to sense the atmosphere of the orthodox tradition. We shall see in what follows what this health and vitalizing of the soul is and several ways of attaining it and how a healthy and living soul functions. Health of the soul consists in dispassion and spiritual knowledge. The soul is perfect when permeated by virtues. A soul is perfect if its passable aspect is totally oriented towards God. A pure soul is one that loves God 
A pure soul is one freed from passions and constantly delighted by divine love. The Holy Fathers also described several ways in which the soul is revived, vitalized, and healed. Godly sorrow or repentance puts an end to sensual pleasure, but the destruction of sensual pleasure is the soul's resurrection. Anthony, the great servant of God, said that we must purify our minds. Quote, For I believe that when the mind is completely pure, and is in its natural state, it gains penetrating insight, and it sees more clearly and further than the demons, since the Lord reveals things to it. End quote from Hezekiah the priest. That is to say, this holy servant of the soul enjoins us to purify our minds. It has been observed that if anyone keeps his noose pure from evil thoughts and various images, then he can keep his soul pure. Theoleptos, Metropolitan of Philadelphia, teaches When having put an end to external distractions, you also master inner thoughts, then your noose is stirred to spiritual acts and words. The effort to keep one's mind pure and to free oneself from the many distractions results in the appearance within us of the noose, which has been dead and unseen. Therefore, again, Theoleptos advises put an end to mixing with the outer world and fight with the inner thoughts until you find the place of pure prayer and the home where Christ dwells. The heart, as we shall point out in another place, is the home where God dwells. We shall discover it only when we strive to live quietly and when we struggle against the thoughts which hold sway in us. Purity of the noose is very important. This method is simple but comprehensive and brings great benefit to man's soul since it makes it a temple of the Holy Spirit. The soul is healed when it rejects relations with inferior things and cleaves, cleaves in love to one who is superior. Gregory Palamas St. Gregory Palamas, interpreting the whole tradition of the Orthodox Church, says that through transgression and sin, we lost the likeness of God, but we did not lose the image. Precisely because we did not lose the image, we can restore the soul. The soul freed from relations with inferior things and cleaving in love to one who is superior and submitting to him through the works and ways of virtue receives from him illumination, adornment, and betterment, and it obeys his counsels and exhortations from which it receives true and eternal life. When the soul obeys God's law, it gradually becomes healthy, is illuminated, and receives eternal life. Besides the practical method for healing the soul, Nesidus Stathatos also offers another method through Theoria. Where there is love for God, an active noose, and participation in the unapproachable light, there is also peace in the powers of the soul, purification of the noose, and indwelling of the Holy Trinity. Therefore, beside the effort to keep our noose pure, it is necessary to accustom the noose to inner action and inner prayer, to acquire charity and love for God, because where this love dwells, peace comes to the powers of the soul and purity of the noose. 
In another section of this book, we speak more analytically about how the soul is healed when it moves according to nature, and there we describe the natural movement of each part of the soul. Here, since we're speaking of the healing of the soul, we shall just briefly emphasize a few facts. St. Gregory Palamas writes that we struggle to drive the law of sin out of our body and to install in its place the oversight of the noose, in this way establishing a law appropriate for each power of the soul and for every member of the body. For the senses, we ordain self-control. For the passable part of the soul, love. We improve the intelligence by rejecting everything which impedes the mind's ascent towards God, and this we call nipsis. If a person has purified his body through self-control, has made his emotions and desires an occasion of virtue, and presented to God a mind purified by prayer, then he acquires and sees in himself the grace promised to those whose hearts have been purified. St. Maximus in the Orthodox tradition exhorts, Bridle your souls in sense of power with love, quench its desire with self-control, give wings to its intelligence with prayer, and the light of your noose will never be darkened. It is not advice or medicines that heal the sick soul, that give life to the dead noose, that purify the impure heart, but the ascetic method of the church, self-control, love, prayer, and guarding of the noose from Satan's provocations through evil thoughts. Therefore, we believe that the Orthodox tradition is very important for our time, for it is the only thing that can free a man and heal him from the anxiety and insecurity brought on by the death of his soul. Chapter 3, Section 2, Interrelations of Soul, Noose, Heart, and Mind In the text of the Holy Scripture and of the Holy Fathers, there is confusion, but also distinction among the terms soul, noose, heart, and mind, theania. Anyone delighting in the writings of the Fathers and the New Testament first faces the problem of the confusion among these concepts and terms. These terms are interchanging. I was occupied with this topic for many years and tried to find a solution. In reading the bibliographies on the subject, I found that the interpreters, with very few exceptions, were unable to determine the relations and distinctions of these terms. Therefore, in this section, we shall attempt to distinguish them and to describe the framework within which each term moves. We have so far explained that man's soul is in the image of God, and since the soul gives life to the attached body, the image in man is stronger than the image in the angels. Since the soul is all through the body, both the whole man and the body itself can be regarded as in the image of God. The hymn by St. John of Damascus sung in the funeral service is characteristic. I weep and I wail when I think upon death and behold our beauty, fashioned after the image of God, lying in the tomb, disfigured, dishonored, bereft of form. It is plain that in this hymn the image refers to the body which is in the tomb. Noose and Soul In the text of the New Testament, and the fathers, the soul is identified with the noose. 
the terms nous and soul interchange. St. John of Damascus writes that the nous is the purest part of the soul. It is the eye of the soul. The soul does not have the nous as something distinct from itself, but as its purest part. For as the eye is to the body, so is the nous to the soul. Thus he is saying that the soul has the nous as its eye. St. Gregory Palamas uses the term nous in two senses. It is the whole soul, the image, and it is also a power of the soul, as we explained in another section, because as the Trinitarian God is nous, word, and spirit, so the soul too has nous, word, and spirit. According to this Athenite saint, the nous is identified with the soul, but it is also a power of the soul. I shall cite a characteristic passage containing these concepts. After the creation of man, writes the saint, the angels saw with their eyes the soul of man joined to sense and flesh, and they were seeing another God not only come into being on earth through divine goodness, intellect, and flesh, the same man, but transformed by this extravagance and by the grace of God so as to be the same flesh and noose and spirit, and so that the soul had the image and likeness of God as completely unified in noose and word and spirit. The following things appear in this text. In the beginning it speaks of the soul which is joined with the flesh and the senses. A little further on, the terms soul and noose are interchanged. Instead of soul, he uses noose. Noose and flesh, the same man. In what follows, he uses the division flesh, noose, and spirit, the spirit being the grace of the Holy Spirit, since God did not form man only of soul and body, but also divinely favored with grace, for such is the truly living soul. After this, he writes that the soul is in the image and likeness of God, completely unified in noose and word and spirit. So it seems clear in this text that the soul is in the image of God, that the noose is sometimes identified with soul and at other times regarded as a power of the soul, the eye of the soul, as St. John of Damascus says. The identification of noose with soul is clear also in another passage of St. Gregory Palamas. He writes in one of his chapters, For it is not the bodily constitution, but the very nature of the noose which possesses this image, and nothing in our nature is superior to the noose. Man's soul, being in the image of God, is triadic. It is noose, word, and spirit. Since in the general meaning the noose is identified with the soul, it means that the noose too has three powers. While the noose is one of the powers of the soul, at the same time it is also the whole soul. We shall cite one characteristic passage in St. Gregory. When the oneness of the noose becomes threefold, while yet remaining single, it is united with the divine threefold oneness. The oneness of the noose becomes threefold while remaining single, when it returns to itself and rises through itself to God. Thus the soul is one, although it has many powers, one of which is the noose, but in addition the soul as a whole with its three powers is also called the noose. 
We have already seen that the fathers refer the image of God to the soul, but at the same time it is also said that the image refers to the noose. It is not the bodily constitution, but the very nature of the noose which possesses this image. Insomuch as God has essence and energy, so too the soul which is in the image of God has essence and energy. But since, as we have seen, the noose is also identified with the soul, the noose too has essence and energy. St. Gregory Palamas, with all his wisdom and discrimination, analyzes this fact. The heart is the essence of the soul, and the activity of the noose, consisting of thoughts and conceptual images, is the energy of the soul. Therefore, the noose too has essence and energy. So the term noose is used sometimes to mean essence and sometimes to mean energy or action. The saint writes characteristically, what is called noose is also the activity of the noose, consisting of thoughts and conceptual images. Noose is also the power which produces this and when in scripture is called the heart. Since St. Gregory's contemporaries reproached him when he spoke of the return of the noose to the heart, he wrote, It would seem that such people are unaware that the essence of the noose is one thing and its energy another. Chapter 3, Orthodox Psychotherapy, Section 2, Interrelations of Soul, Noose, Heart, and Mind, Noose, and Heart. The noose is also called the essence of the soul, that is to say, the heart. In many passages of Holy Scripture and in the Fathers, there is this identification of noose and heart, since these terms are used interchangeably. The Lord blesses the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Matthew 5.8 God is revealed in the heart, and it is there that man comes to know him. The Apostle Paul writes that God's illumination is there. God has caused his light to shine in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4.6 The same Apostle prays, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your hearts being enlightened that you may know. Ephesians 1, 17-18 The heart receives the revelation of the knowledge of God. Elsewhere this heart is replaced by the noose. When the Lord was among his disciples after his resurrection, he opened their understanding, noose, that they might comprehend the scriptures. Luke 24:45. Since man comes to know God through opening the eyes of his heart and purifying his heart, the phrase, he opened their understanding, is the same as he opened their hearts. Likewise, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, is, I believe, linked with the apostolic passage, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, your noose. Romans 12.2 So, in this sense, the noose is also called heart, and the two terms noose and heart interchange. St. Maximus the Confessor, interpreting Christ's sayings, 
Give alms from what is inside, and you will find that everything is clean for you, Luke 11.41, says, This applies to those who no longer spend their time on things to do with the body, but strive to cleanse the noose, which the Lord calls heart, from hatred and dissipation. For these defile the noose, and do not allow it to see Christ, who dwells in it by the grace of holy baptism. So the noose is called the essence of the soul that is the heart. In this conception, noose and heart are identical since Christ dwells in the noose. Chapter 3, Orthodox Psychotherapy, Section 2, Interrelations of Soul, Noose, Heart, and Mind, Noose and Reason. However, the energy of the noose, consisting of thoughts and conceptual images, is also called noose. The Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthians, If I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my noose is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with the spirit, and I will pray with the noose also. I will sing with the spirit, and I will sing with the noose also. 1 Corinthians 14, 14-15 In this passage, the spirit is the gift of tongues and the noose is reason. So here, noose is identified with reason, intelligence. There are many passages in Holy Scripture with this meaning. Beyond these things, St. Maximus the Confessor, giving the name noose to the intelligence and the heart, which is the center of our being, through which we acquire knowledge of God, presents the distinction and energy of each function. A pure noose sees things correctly. A trained intelligence puts them in order. The noose heart is that which sees things clearly and therefore should be purified, and the intelligence is that which formulates and expresses what has been seen. With this passage, we come to the point of asserting that in order to be a father of the church, it is necessary to have not only a clear noose, but also expression that is trained speech in order to express these supernatural realities as far as is possible. Noose and Attention Other fathers use the term noose to define attention, which is more subtle than reason. Theoleptos of Philadelphia links noose with attention, word with invocation, spirit with compunction and love. When the powers of the soul function in this way, then the whole of the inner man serves the Lord. But it sometimes happens that while the mind is offering the words of prayer, the noose, the more subtle attention, does not go with it, does not fix its gaze on God, with whom the words of the prayer are speaking, but it is distracted by different thoughts without realizing it. So the mind says the words from habit, but the noose is taken away from knowledge of God. Therefore, the soul too then seems not to be aware or organized, since the noose is scattered in various fantasies and is engaged in things which deceive it or in in things which it desires. So, the noose itself, which is not simply the thoughts, but the subtler attention, should return to the heart, to the essence of the soul, which is located as in an organ within the bodily organ of the heart, since this bodily organ is the seat of intelligence and the first intelligent organ of the body. 
Thus we should concentrate our noose, which is scattered abroad by the senses, and bring it back again to the self-same heart, the seat of thoughts. We have not exhausted the subject of the noose. In this section we simply wanted in some way to distinguish the terms noose, heart, and soul, and to point out their relations and differences. We shall return to these concepts when we speak at greater length about noose, heart, and thoughts. In this section, we want briefly to emphasize that the term noose has many meanings in the biblico-patristic tradition. The noose is identified with the soul, but at the same time it is also an energy of the soul. Like the soul, the noose too is in the image of God, and just as the soul is divided into essence and energy, the same is true of the noose. And just as in God, essence and energy are separated inseparably, so it is with the noose. That is why in some places the fathers characterize noose as essence, that is the heart, in which case the noose is identified with the heart, and in other passages they characterize noose as energy, conceptual images and thoughts, and the subtler attention which is poured out through the senses, when it should return to the heart. The fathers mainly refer to the noose more generally as the heart and the soul, without excluding the other names which we mentioned before. We have lost our tradition relating to it, and many of us identify the noose with intelligence. We do not at all suspect that aside from intelligence, there is also another power which has greater value, the noose, the heart. The whole of civilization is a civilization of the loss of the heart, and a person cannot understand what he has not in his heart. The heart has died, the noose has been darkened, and we cannot perceive their presence. That is why this clarification has been necessary. A person who has the Holy Spirit within him, who is in the revelation, does not need many clarifications, because he himself knows from experience the presence and existence of the noose, the heart. Chapter 3, Section 3, Noose, Heart, and Thoughts What has been said so far is introductory to our analysis and interpretation of the inner life of the soul. The sickness and the cure of the soul is mainly the sickness and cure of the noose, heart, and thoughts. What follows will revolve around this topic. We shall study separately the noose, heart, and thoughts. I think that this analysis will help us to examine our inner self. A. The Noose we have already emphasized that the term noose has many meanings in the works of the fathers of the church. Sometimes it is identified with the soul. Sometimes it is an energy of the soul, the eye of the soul. Sometimes the term suggests the essence of the soul. Sometimes it's energy, and sometimes it means the attentiveness which is subtler than the mind. In this section, in studying the sickness and healing of the noose, we shall regard it as the eye of the soul. We shall take the term chiefly to mean the power of the soul, as well as the purest part of the soul, which is the eye of the soul, in accord with the words of St. John of Damascus. It does not have the noose as something distinct from itself, but as its purest part. For, as the eye is to the body, so is the noose to the soul. This eye of the soul, noose, which acts through the senses, is what becomes contaminated, falls ill, needs to be healed. 
Just as when the eye of the body is ill, the whole body is darkened, so when the eye of the soul, which is the noose, is ill, man's entire soul is darkened. This is what the Lord meant when he said, If the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Matthew 6.23 When the noose has gone out of the heart, withdrawn from God, it sickens and dies, whereupon the whole soul is deadened. We shall see this more analytically in what follows. The Natural Life of the Noose The fathers define the natural life of the noose clearly. According to Nesidus Stathatos, God is dispassionate noose, above all noose, and all dispassion. He is light and the source of good light. He is wisdom, word, and knowledge, as well as the giver of wisdom, word, and knowledge. And man, as the image of God, has a dispassionate noose when his noose is in its natural state and does not move beyond its own rank and nature. Therefore, man's noose desires and seeks to be united with God, from whom it had its beginning, and by its natural qualities it traces back to him and longs to imitate him in simplicity and love for man. And as the noose father begets the word who begets and recreates men, so also the soul's noose begets the word and recreates the souls of men of the same race like other heavens and makes them strong to persevere in the act of virtues. And not only does the noose recreate the souls of other men through the word, but it gives them life by the breath of its mouth. Thus the noose of a man who is moving towards God recreates other souls and imitating him is himself shown to be a creator of the intelligible creation and the great universe. This passage from Nasidus Stathatos shows that when the noose moves naturally towards God and is united with him, it too becomes by grace what the heavenly noose is by nature. The union of the noose with God is a standing, but at the same time it is also a motion, since perfection in general can never be completed. St. Maximus writes of ever-moving standing and stationary motion. While man remains in God, he is in constant motion. Nicetus Stathatos says the same thing about the noose. All the nooses in this first noose have both constant standing and endless motion. This is not the case with an impure noose, but with a noose which is pure and undefiled. The noose united with the first noose becomes good and wise. God alone is good and wise by nature, but if you exert yourself, your noose also becomes good and wise by participation. In describing the natural state of the noose, we have to define clearly what its natural, unnatural, and supranatural movements are. St. Mark the ascetic describes the three motions of the noose. The noose changes from one to another of three different states, that according to nature, above nature, and contrary to nature. When it enters the state according to nature, it finds that it is itself the cause of evil thoughts and confesses its sins to God, clearly understanding the causes of the passions. When it enters the state contrary to nature, it forgets God's justice and fights with men believing itself unjustly treated. But when it is raised to the state above nature, it finds the fruits of the Holy Spirit. It is the life of the Spirit which manifests the natural state of the noose and portrays its natural development. 
When a person perseveres in keeping his noose moving according to nature, he remains pure from the material sphere and is adorned with gentleness, humility, love, and compassion and is illuminated by the light of the Holy Spirit. According to St. Maximus the Confessor, the noose functions in accordance with nature when it keeps the passions under control, contemplates the inner essences of created beings, and abides with God. The Holy Fathers also emphasize the fact that the noose is changed by every conceptual image of things which it accepts. If it contemplates the conceptual images of things spiritually, it is transformed in various ways according to which of them it contemplates. When it is united with God, it loses form and configuration altogether. Therefore, it is very important for the noose to learn to receive conceptual images of things spiritually, for otherwise it does not live in its natural state. It is distorted, and when the noose, which is the eye of the soul, is distorted, then the whole soul is automatically distorted. For when one power of the soul is defiled and becomes sick, all the other powers are distorted and sickened, since the soul is single. The noose is what determines one's whole condition, since it is the nourisher of the soul. Our noose is between two things, virtue and vice, angel and demon, each of which works for its own ends. The noose joined with freedom has both the authority and the power to follow or resist whichever it wishes to. The noose is what divides the soul. First, the noose sickens and then it defiles the whole soul and leads it astray. The soul goes wherever the noose gives impetus to any human passion. It is characteristic of the noose that where something becomes its constant concern, there it prospers. And as a result, it turns desire and love in that direction. This can be either towards what is divine, intelligible and proper to its nature, or towards the passions and the things of the flesh. The passion of love, when reprehensible, occupies the noose with material things, but when rightly, directly, rightly directed, unites it with the divine. Therefore, orthodox ascesis attaches great importance to the progress and movement of the noose. For when the noose turns and gazes at material things and is defiled by the conceptual image of those things, it falls ill, and it transmits that illness to all the powers of the soul. In general, we can say that the movements of the noose are according to nature, above nature, and contrary to nature. With the freedom which it has, the noose moves according to its own desire and is changed according to the path followed and the place where it stays, and then it changes the soul either negatively or positively. Men turn their minds either to their sins or to Jesus or to men. We trust that this will become clearer in what follows when we speak of the sickness and the healing of the noose. St. Gregory of Nyssa teaches, The noose is not confined to any one part of it, but is equally in all and through all. The communication of the noose with the body presents an ineffable and inconceivable contact, not being within it, for the incorporeal is not enclosed within a body, nor yet surrounding it without, for that which is incorporeal does not include anything, but approaching our nature in some perplexing and incomprehensible way and coming into contact with it 
is to be regarded as both in it and around it, neither implanted in, implanted in it nor enfolded with it. St. Gregory Palamas, explaining the, pas the passage from St. Macarius, which teaches that the noose and all the thoughts of the soul are in the heart as in an organ, and the passage of St. Gregory of Nyssa, which teaches that the noose being bodiless is not in the body, writes that these two passages are not contradictory, but complete each other in a unity. St. Macarius and St. Gregory of Nyssa had different anthropological presuppositions. That is to say, it is in one sense that Macarius speaks of the noose as in the body, and it is in another sense that St. Gregory speaks of it as outside the body. Just as anyone who states that God, being bodiless, is not in a specific place, is not contradicting one who states that the Word was once in the pure Virgin Mother of God. So it is in these passages in the Fathers referring to the noose. Man's noose, being bodiless, is outside the body, but also in the body, using the heart ineffably as the first organ of the flesh. We have explained in another section that the noose has essence and energy, and that as essence it is in the heart, while as energy it works in thoughts, and thus it comes out of the body and conceives the conceptual images of things. In the natural state of the, the noose enters the heart, the energy enters the essence, and thus it rises towards God. This is the circular motion of the noose which we shall speak later. The noose as the image of God has life only when it is united with God and is made wise and good. This is the life of the noose. The Apostle Paul writes, For who has known the noose of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the noose of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.16 The natural state of the noose is for it to be united with the noose of Christ. Then it is illuminated and enlightened. The real life and true energy of the noose are present when the soul's intelligence is occupied with divine visions and sends up praise and thanksgiving to God and when it attaches itself to Him by constant remembrance. Withdrawal from God deadens the noose while the life of the noose is association and union with Him. According to St. Maximus, the light of spiritual knowledge is the noose's life, and since this light is engendered by love for God, there is nothing greater than love for God. As the body needs bread to live and the soul needs virtue to live, so too spiritual prayer is the nourishment of the noose. Prayer feeds the noose and gives it life. When the noose is moving towards God and is united with Him, it is healthy and vital and in this state it receives God's consolation. In God the noose acquires health, perception, and this perceptive faculty of the noose consists in the power to discriminate accurately between the tastes of different realities. In the spiritual life it is essential that the noose should have life so as to be able to distinguish the actions and consolations of God from the actions of the devil. In a healthy noose which devotes itself continually to divine realities, the soul's passable aspect becomes a godlike weapon. Then the whole soul is healthy. The noose is a chariot drawing the soul either to God or to the devil in the deeds of sin. In any case, when the noose is healthy, 
it is given assurance by God. The Apostle Paul's commandment about having a pure and living noose is clear. Let everyone be fully convinced in his own noose. Romans 14.5 Although the noose is a power of the soul in the sense which concerns us in this section, it does have other powers and energies. Nicetus Stathatos teaches that the noose has four powers, understanding, acuteness, apprehension, and quick-wittedness. These four powers of the noose must be united with the four general virtues of the soul. The noose's understanding must be united with the soul's self-restraint, acuteness, with moral judgment, apprehension, with justice, and quick-wittedness, with courage. This forms the chariot of fire traversing the heavens, which confronts the three passions of avarice, sensuality, and ambition. These divisions of the noose in us are no doubt incomprehensible to us, but the fathers, through their struggles and by the illumination of the Holy Spirit, distinguished and traced these powers and became familiar with the whole inner makeup of the soul. A person living in the revelation, illuminated by the Holy Spirit, comes to know all the depths of the soul and all the powers of the noose, which are unknown and inconceivable to anyone who is far from grace. Moreover, to anyone far from God, the whole man is obscure and unknown. All these things which we have mentioned show the natural state of the noose as it functions in the natural man, in the man of God. The noose's task is to reject any thought that secretly vilifies a fellow being. In the natural state, the noose repulses the thoughts which proceed from the devil and in general repulses every thought which is contrary to love. Likewise, the noose is perfected when it grows rich with knowledge of God. The noose is perfect when transformed by spiritual knowledge. This knowledge is knowledge of God and of things created in a way transcending knowledge. A perfect noose is one which by true faith and in a manner beyond all unknowing supremely knows the supremely unknowable and surveys the entirety of God's creation. Chapter 3, the third section on the sickness of the heart. It is well known throughout the biblical patristic tradition that when the heart of man ceases to conform to the will of God and does the desires of the devil, it sickens and is made dead. One speaks of the sickness, hardening, uncleanness, spiritual death of the heart. In this section, we shall look at some manifestations of the sick heart. The devil enters the heart of man and takes it captive. And supper being ended, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. John thirteen two. No doubt his noose had been in captivity for many years before this. Just as it is impossible for fire and water to pass through the same pipe together, so it is impossible for sin to enter the heart without first knocking at its door in the form of a fantasy provoked by the devil. Fantasy is what leads the devil's provocation into the heart. In fallen man, fantasy, which is more subtle than thought and coarser than the noose, is the beginning of evil. Therefore the fathers advise us to keep our fantasy pure, or better to live in such a way as not to activate fantasy, but rather to mortify the fantastic. It is only when 
It is only when that is made dead by great penitence and much inward grief that one can theologize. The fathers write about the perdition of the heart. This is taken to mean that the grace of Christ is not acting in the heart and that the supernatural center has become a paranatural center. Perdition of the heart is the loss of salvation. One of the diseases of the heart is ignorance and forgetfulness of God. When it has lost the grace of God, the heart becomes clouded, dark, hidden. This is what was seen in the Jews and the heretics. They read the scripture, but they did not understand it at all because their hearts were veiled. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. 2 Corinthians 3.15 It is through the heart that one acquires certainty of God. It is in the heart that God is revealed, that he speaks and interprets his word. When it is hidden, a man is in deep darkness, and a heart which has ignorance is hell. Hell is ignorance, for both are dark, and perdition is forgetfulness, for both involve extinction. Hardness and hardening is another disease of the heart. Because it does not accept the grace of God which changes everything, it remains hard. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in your hearts and ears, said the proto-martyr Stephen to the Jews in Acts 7.51. This hardness is what arrogance stores up, and a man will be judged for it. By your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, Romans 2.5. A hard heart is an iron gate to the city. When closed, the gate does not allow one to enter the city. But the heart of one who suffers hardship and affliction will open of its own accord as it did to Peter. It is, it is our duty not to create the preconditions for hardening of the heart. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, Hebrews 3.8. The Lord many times encountered such callous hearts. After the miracles of the multiplying of the five loaves and the storm, their hearts were hardened, Mark 6:52. In another connection, the Lord said to the people, Is your heart still hardened? Mark 8:17. When confronted with men who were observing whether he would heal on the Sabbath, the Lord looked around them at, with anger, grieved by the hardness of their hearts and healed the man who had a withered hand. Mark 3.5 Uncleanness is another sickness of the heart. When the heart has lost the grace of God and the evil demons are working in it, it is naturally unclean. According to Nicetus Stathatos, uncleanness of the heart is not only that the person has unclean thoughts, but also that he boasts of his successes, is puffed up about his virtues, has great thoughts, that is to say, is proud of his wisdom and his knowledge of God and blames those of his brothers who are indolent and careless. This is shown in the parable of the publican and the Pharisee. Every desire that comes to his heart, even if it is not carried out externally, is impurity and adultery. The Lord said, Everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Matthew 5.28 but also every other desire which is not carnal is the narrow sense of the term, in the narrow sense of the term, not carnal, but goes against the will of God, is a defilement of the heart and hence a sickness. The heart is then sick. Likewise, the foolish heart is sick. Of the idolaters who worshipped created things more than the Creator, we are told, 
their foolish hearts were darkened, Romans 1, 21. Lack of uprightness is another sickness of the heart. The heart which does the will of the evil one is not upright, since uprightness of heart is possible only when the heart is in its natural state, that is, when it is the dwelling place of God. The Apostle Peter said accusingly to Simon the sorcerer, who wanted to acquire the grace of God with money, Your heart is not right in the sight of God. Acts 8.21 Rudeness, too, is a sickness of the heart. The passions of the heart make it rude, and this rudeness is manifested outwardly as well. Therefore, in the Orthodox tradition, kindness is clearly spoken about, not so much outward as inward kindness. The heart must be simple, refined. A man with a simple heart is also outwardly kind. Thus, there is an outward kindness which does not come from kindness of heart, or rather is in clear contrast to a rudeness existing in the heart, and there is also an outer kindness which flows from, the, flows from and reflects inner gentleness. Archimandridi Sophroni writes about St. Siloan, Even the most perceptive intuition brought into contact with Father Siloan, whatever the circumstances, could have found nothing ignoble in him. He did not know what it was to spurn or disregard. He was a stranger to affectation. He was a really noble spirit in the way only a Christian can be noble. So, when there is affectation, hypocrisy, sarcasm, antipathy, it is certain that the heart is sick since its behavior is rude. Another sickness of the heart is inward self-indulgence. The heart's pleasure, instead of centering on and delighting in the love of God, revolves around and enjoys carnal things, things displeasing to God. A self-indulgent heart is a prison of the soul, especially at the hour of death. According to St. Mark the ascetic, a self-indulgent heart becomes a prison and chain for the soul when it leaves this life. The passions of the soul are satisfied as long as there is a body, but when the soul has been released from the body, it will not be able to be satisfied, since it will lack material things. Therefore, these passions, mainly self-indulgence of the soul, not finding satisfaction, will strangle the soul. These are the demons spoken of in patristic writings. This is why a self-indulgent heart is a prison and chain for the soul at the time of the departure from this life. A man's sick and dead soul transmits the sickness and darkening to his whole psychosomatic being. Whatever he thinks and desires is dead. Therefore, Abba Dorotheus says that as long as we are subject to passion, we must not trust our heart at all, for a crooked ruler makes even straight things crooked. And St. Mark the Ascetic advises, until you have eradicated evil, do not obey your heart. The sick heart must be healed. If it is not healed, man's whole organism is sick. Chapter 3, Section 3, The Healing of the Noose Orthodox living presupposes above all that the noetic faculty of the soul should be healed, since when the noose is darkened, the whole soul is darkened and defiled, the curing of the noose results in the curing of our whole being. We now turn to the subject of healing the noose. In order to clarify the subject, we shall limit ourselves to two basic points. 
First, how this healing is achieved, and then what are the results? It is a basic teaching of our saints that the noose is healed through guarding the noose. This is called watchfulness. The guarding of the noose is a watchtower commanding a view over our whole spiritual life. The guarding of the noose has been called light producing and lightning producing, and light giving and fire bearing, and it surpasses many virtues. The guarding of the noose is that which, by Christ's power, can change men from being sinful, indecent, profane, ignorant, uncomprehending, and unjust, to being just, responsive, pure, holy, and wise. Beyond these things, guarding the noose can enable men to contemplate mystically and to theologize. Through guarding the noose, a man is purified, is made holy, and becomes capable of theology. According to Philotheus of Sinai, we should be extremely strict in guarding our noose. When we see an evil thought, we must rebut it and immediately call upon Christ. Jesus, in his gentle love, will say, Behold, I am by your side and ready to help you, but it is also necessary and required to guard the noose. However, guarding the noose is not only the effort not to let evil thoughts come and capture the noose, but it is a variety of actions. Since evil thoughts come from the passions, the guarding of the noose begins with self-control in food and drink, rejection of all kinds of evil thoughts, and stillness of heart. The guarding of the noose is combined with watchfulness and the Jesus prayer, because there is no progress whatsoever in guarding the noose without watchfulness, humility, and the Jesus prayer. This means that this guarding cannot achieve its end unless one makes the effort to be freed from passions and to acquire the virtues. To heal a deadened noose takes courage. The fathers lay great stress on the importance of courage for the spiritual life. A brave athlete does not give up or lose heart even in a circumstance where he bows to the devil, but he hopes in God. A courageous soul resurrects his dying noose. A good horse, when mounted, warms up and quickens its pace. The singing of psalms is the pace, and a resolute noose is the horse. It is only courage that gives a man heart to revive his dead, his noose dead from sin. However, the noose has many tasks. All of Christ's commandments must be kept if it is to be revived. For if death comes to the noose through not keeping the commandments, its resurrection and restoration to life will come through keeping them. One must be concerned to love God, remember God, Remember the kingdom, remember the zeal of the holy martyrs, remember God's very presence, remember the holy and spiritual powers, remember departure from this life, remember judgment, sentence, and punishment. Stillness, prayer, love, and self-control are a four-choice, four-horse chariot bearing the noose to heaven. The noose is illumined when a person does not neglect the practice of the virtues. Nicetus Stathatos, disciple of St. Simeon, the new theologian, and in the same tradition, states that the short way for beginners is to, to acquire virtue is silence of the lips and closed eyes and ears. This stillness of the senses through closing the entrances helps the noose to see itself clearly and to discern movements. Thus the noose, like a commander, stands independently between ideas judging and separating the good thoughts from the bad ones, 
accepting the good ones and laying up spiritual goods, by which it is nourished and strengthened and filled with light, and casting the other thoughts into the abyss of oblivion, shaking off their bitterness. This passage deserves our full attention. We see clearly that a noose which is freed from enslavement to the senses by silencing the lips and suspending external stimulation becomes the regulator of the soul. It does not allow putrid and satanic thoughts to enter the so-called unconscious, the depths of the soul. Good thoughts, which nourish and give life to the person, enter the depth of the soul. Thus all the conceptual images are actions of a man whose thought is the ruling emperor is pure, are pure. St. Maximus further exhorts the spiritual combatant, bridle your soul's insensive power with love, quench its desire with self-control, give wings to its intelligence with prayer, and the light of your noose will never be darkened. It is a basic instruction of the Holy Fathers that at the beginning of our inner spiritual work to heal the noose, we must keep it pure. Of course, this must also be continued afterward. St. John of the Latter instructs, Control your impetus noose in your distracted body. Fix your noose to your soul as to the wood of a cross. Strike it with alternating hammer blows like an anvil. Hold back your noose so busy with its own concerns. But this work must be joined with the effort to protect God's claim on one's life. It should be emphasized that the practical man subjects his noose in a different way from the illuminated man. Similarly, there is a difference according to the man's spiritual age and the work that he is doing to control his noose. The man engaged in ascetic practice can readily submit his noose to prayer, while the contemplative can readily submit prayer to his noose. This work achieves that healing of the noose which is called purification in the language of the fathers. A noose that has been defiled by passions must be purified. This work of purification is performed by the Holy Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit can purify the noose. Therefore, it is necessary above all that the Holy Spirit should dwell in us so that we may have the lamp of spiritual knowledge always burning within us. When the Mighty One enters the soul and overthrows the despoiler, then what has been taken captive can be set free, otherwise this is impossible. Nesidus Stathatos describes how the noose is purified. As we have five senses, so we also have five corresponding ascetic practices. The five ascetic practices are vigils, meditation, prayer, self-control, and hezekiah. One needs to join sight with vigils, hearing with meditation, smell with prayer, taste with self-control, and touch with Hezekiah. In this way, the noose is quickly purified, refined, and becomes dispassionate and perspicacious. Hezekiah the priest gives greater attention to the Jesus prayer because it purifies the noose from foul thoughts. Anyone troubled by sickening food takes the appropriate remedy and gets rid of it. The same is also done by prayer with regard to the defiled noose. When the noose, having received evil thoughts, swallows them and feels their bitterness, it can easily expel them and get rid of them completely by means of the Jesus prayer uttered from the depths of the heart. So purifying the noose is not a matter simply of finding the thoughts which have entered it, but of expelling them, 
which is not achieved by rational thoughts and analysis, but only by the Jesus prayer. And when we say prayer, we mean that action of the Holy Spirit which comes into the heart when Christ is remembered in the heart. St. Gregory Palamas emphasizes that the action of the noose consisting of thoughts is quickly purified by devoting time to prayer, especially prayer of a single word. When a man devotes himself to prayer, the action of his intellect is cured. The evil thoughts cease in the whole soul, but the whole soul is not pure. The power which produces the action cannot be purified unless all the other powers of the soul are also purified. All those powers must be purified by self-control, love, and so forth, because otherwise the man is deluded if he thinks that he has been purified. To limit sleep, that is to keep vigil, contributes to this purification. A vigilant eye makes the noose pure. If the noose's ignorance, which is a deep darkness covering the soul's vision, makes it dim and obscures the understanding of things divine and human, repentance cures it. Here we can also see the great value of repentance. Therefore, St. Nestidus Stathatos, who describes the darkening of the noose, also offers us healing through repentance. But when its eyes have been uncovered through repentance, the soul sees these things clearly, gives ear to them with knowledge, and grasps them with understanding. At the same time, it acquires knowledge of God, and as a result, through God's wisdom, it tells the good wonders of God to all. Repentance, which takes place in deep mourning and joined with confession, is what unveils the eyes of the soul to see the great things of God. In the writings of the fathers, much is said about the return of the noose to the heart, the return of the energy to the essence. A letter of St. Basil the Great to his friend St. Gregory contains the famous passage, For when the noose is not engaged by external affairs, nor diffused through the senses over the whole world, it retires within itself. Then it ascends spontaneously to the consideration of God. Illumined by that splendor, it becomes forgetful of its own nature. Since then, it does not drag the soul down either to the thought of sustenance or to a solicitude for bodily apparel, but enjoys freedom from earthly cares. It turns all its zeal to the acquisition of eternal goods. I have quoted this whole passage because it is expressive and was therefore used by St. Gregory Palamas in his dispute with Barlaam. St. Basil the Great says that the noose which is not scattered among things of the senses in the world outside returns to itself and through itself rises to the vision of God. Then illumined and shining with beauty, it is not interested in earthly things and forgets even its own nature. The return of the scattered noose to the heart that is the return of the energy to the essence, is the cure of the noose. There the noose finds its real place. On its return, it first finds the physical heart and then the metaphysical, spiritual heart. The ascetic descends into his inmost heart, into his natural heart first, and thence into those depths that are no longer of the flesh. He finds his deep heart, reaches the profound, spiritual, metaphysical core of his being, and looking into it, he sees that the existence of mankind is not something alien and extraneous to him, but is inextricably bound up with his own being. The return of the noose to the heart is in reality a unifying of the noose, that is, a union of the noose and the heart. 
This union is confirmed by tears of compunction and a sweet sense of the love of God. Tears of compunction during prayer are a sure sign that the noose is united with the heart and that pure prayer has found its prime place and the initial step in its ascent to God. This is why ascetics rate tears so highly. On entering the heart, the noose detaches itself from every image, both visible and mental. The doors of the heart are closed to every foreign element and the soul penetrates into the darkness of a quite especial nature and is subsequently deemed worthy of standing inevitably before God with a pure noose. In discussing the return of the noose to the heart, of the noose's energy to its essence, we should speak of the three motions of the noose as described by St. Dionysius the Areopagite. He says that the soul and the noose have three movements. The first is the circular one, the entrance into itself and away from what is outside, so there is an inner concentration of its spiritual powers. In this movement, the soul first returns to itself, assembles all its powers, and that way rises towards the God who is without beginning or end and who is beyond all things. This way is fixed. It does not let the mind wander, and thus concentrated, it rises to God. The noose is released from everything created. It discards every notion of creation, every fantasy. It is united with the heart through repentance, and there God is revealed, since the noose is united with him. This is the motion of what is called apophatic theology. The second movement is in a straight line, when the soul, progressing towards the things around it, rises from things outside, as if from some color, colorful or multiple symbols, to simple and unified contemplations. This is what is called natural theoria, or cataphatic theology, which sees God in nature. Through contemplation of nature, the soul is lifted up towards God. It is a method which is open to delusion because many people who have learned in this way to look straight at God's creatures are deluded and come to worship created things more than creation and the creator. The third movement, called the spiral one, is a link between the previous two movements. The fathers give priority to the first movement, called the circular one, because it forms a circle. The noose returns to the heart, through the heart is lifted up to the vision of God, and this way delusion is avoided. This circular motion is attained through noetic prayer, in which the athlete of the spirit struggles to return the noose to itself, to propel it, not in a straight line, but in the circular motion that is infallible. The return of the noose to the heart is achieved by prayer, especially noetic prayer, when the noose, pure from any thoughts and ideas, prays to God without distraction. Therefore, Nihilus the ascetic blesses the noose which prays without distraction and immaterial, immaterially to God. Blessed is the noose that is completely free from forms during prayer. Blessed is the noose that, undistracted in its prayer, acquires an ever greater longing for God. Blessed is the noose that during prayer is free from materiality and is stripped of all possessions. Blessed is the noose that has acquired complete freedom from sensations during prayer. Since we have seen the ways in which healing of the noose takes place, in what follows we shall look at the results of healing. That is to say, we shall see from the works of the fathers what happens to the noose directly after the cure or during that process. 
One of the first fruits is dispassion. A dispassionate noose is one which has conquered its passions and transcended grief and joy. In this state, when tribulations come, it rejoices, and when high spirits and joys come, it is self-controlled, not going beyond the bounds. This dispassion is the life-giving death of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 4.10 Which comes about through the work of the Holy Spirit. When the noose is freed from external stimuli and cleansed from the defilements of sin, it sees things more clearly. It sees all the methods of the evil one. And when the moment when he is preparing for warfare, it has a clear knowledge of all the wiles of the evil one. The dispassionate noose forms conceptual images that are also passion-free, whether the body is awake or asleep. The clearest conscience is not troubled with impassioned thoughts during sleep when the mind is inactive. Purification, too, is very closely connected with dispassion. Pure noose is one divorced from ignorance and illumined by divine light. Purification of the noose is important because in this way a person acquires knowledge of God. The pure noose is taught sometimes by God, sometimes by the angelic powers, and sometimes by the nature of the things that it contemplates. The pure noose, according to St. Maximus, is occupied either with passion-free conceptual images of human affairs or with the natural contemplation of things visible or invisible or with the light of the Holy Trinity. It understands the scriptures, and he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures, Luke twenty-four forty-five. According to St. Maximus, there is an attraction between a pure noose and knowledge, through love, knowledge of God naturally draws to itself the pure noose. The Holy Spirit finds the pure noose and initiates it according into the mysteries of the age to be. In this way, the person becomes a theologian. For theology is not given by human knowledge and zeal, but by the work of the Holy Spirit which dwells in the pure heart. The noose which has been purified becomes for the soul a sky full of, full of the stars of radiant and glorious thoughts with the sun of righteousness shining in it, sending the beaming rays of theology out into the world. Therefore, Abbot Sisios, in answer to Abba Amon's question as to whether in reading scripture it was necessary to concentrate on the words so as to be ready to answer questions that one might be asked, said that it is not necessary. It is better to possess yourself through purity of spirit and to be without anxiety and then to speak. Real theology is not a fruit of material concentration, but a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. When a man's noose is purified, then he is illuminated, and if his noose has, has the capacity that is wisdom, he can theologize. Therefore, we say that his whole life, even his body itself, is theology. The purified man is wholly a theology. The fathers sometimes made use of the earlier fathers, not because they did not have experience themselves, but in order to confirm this experience, especially at, at the time when there were men who denied it. Through purification of the noose, we also gain real knowledge of ourselves. The philosopher Barlaam maintained that holiness and perfection cannot be found without division, reasoning, and analysis. So he held that anyone desiring to possess perfection and holiness must be taught methods of distinction, reasoning, and analyzing. But St. Gregory Palamas, 
opposed this view as a heresy of the Stoics and Pythagoreans. We Christians, he taught, do not regard as true knowledge that which is found in words and reasonings, but, but that demonstrated by deeds and life, which is not only true, but also sure and irrefutable. He goes on to say that no one can know himself through distinctions, reasonings, and analyses unless his noose has been made free of conceit and evil by severe penitence and intensive asceticism. No one who has not freed his noose from conceit and evil, that is to say, who has not purified his noose, is going to be aware of his poverty, which is a useful beginning for self-knowledge. This passage is very important because many people today teach that one can come to self-knowledge through self-analysis and psychoanalysis. But this is a delusion and can lead one to frightful results. When someone analyzes himself, he is most likely to end in the schizophrenia. The ascetic method is simple. Using the methods which we have described, that is, guarding the noose, purifying it, and returning it to the heart through penitence and noetic prayer, and keeping Christ's commandments, we try to free the noose from its images and its captivity sensual things so that as it returns to the heart, it can see its inner desolation. Self-knowledge comes through the work of the Holy Spirit. It is only when the grace of God, along with our own work, has illumined our soul that we can accurately that we can know accurately every detail of our being. Therefore, the healing of the noose reveals the existence of the passions, whereupon illumined by the Holy Spirit, and empowered by it, we can wage war against them. When the noose is healed, it is left pure and free from fantasy and debility. Another fruit of the cure of the noose is freedom. Previously a prisoner, now it is freed and full of joy, winging its way towards the heavenly realm that is its native land. When it is freed of passions, whatever it does will be counted as a pure offering to God. When the noose is released from the passions, which are its deadness, it is resurrected. So one can speak of the resurrection of the noose. Nicetus Stathatos relates this resurrection to the miracle of the raising of Lazarus. Just as Lazarus died, so the noose dies of sin and is buried. As Christ comes to Bethany to raise up Lazarus, so he comes to our dead noose to raise it up from the decay caused by passions. And just as Lazarus' sisters Martha and Maria go in tears and lamentation to meet him, so prudence and justice plunged into grief over the death of our noose go in tears to meet him. Justice is hardship and spirited work, while prudence is spiritual work and contemplation. We find this correlation between the two miracles, that is, the raising of Lazarus and the raising of the dead noose, in many of our Orthodox hymns sung in the Church. I should like to quote two of them. Let us hasten to send forth our theoria and praxis, yoked together in a prayer to Christ, that through his awesome authority to give life, we may offer him our dead, our noose dead and buried like Lazarus, as a palm of righteousness, and cry, Blessed is he that comes. In this troparion, it seems that Martha is the praxis and Maria is the theoria, through which Christ is called to resurrect the dead noose. Let us, in faithful imitation of Martha and Mary, send inspired deeds as a delegation to the Lord, asking him to come and raise our noose, lying horridly dead in the tomb, senseless with neglect of the fear of God, 
now utterly feelingless and without vital energy, and cry, Behold, Lord, just as of old in your compassion you raised your friend Lazarus with awesome authority, so in your great mercy give life to us all. The noose is dead in the tomb and has no vital energy. Therefore we exhort ourselves to send Martha and Maria, that is, actions, to Christ to resurrect it. A noose in control of itself, resurrected, becomes a temple of the Holy Spirit. In this state, the pure noose is illuminated and seized with rapture. It delights in the vision of God and talks with the Lord. When the fathers speak of the rapture and ecstasy of the noose, they do not consider that the noose goes out of the body as happened to Pythia, but that it is freed from bodily and worldly care and offers itself to God without losing consciousness of the world. He who has unceasing prayer experiences ecstasy of the noose. This ecstasy is called rapture and is a form of theoria. The pure noose is illuminated, illumined. At this point, we regard it as essential to speak about this light, especially the light of the noose, because it is spoken of in the patristic writings. St. Diodocus, an expert in mystical theology, refers to this light of the noose. You should not doubt that the noose, when it begins to be strongly energized by the divine light, becomes so completely translucent that it sees its own light vividly. But he means that this takes place when the power of the soul gains control over the passions. Likewise, in another place, he says, Those who meditate unceasingly upon this glorious and holy name in the depths of their heart can sometimes see the light of their own noose. This teaching of St. Diodocus is embraced also by Callistos and Ignatius Xanthopoulos. St. Nilus the ascetic teaches that when the angel of God comes to us, with his presence alone he puts an end to all adverse energy within the noose and makes its light energize without illusion. The noose is in the image of God, and inasmuch as God is light, the noose too has light. In this sense, the saints say that man can see the light of his noose. But these things happen to the natural man. On the fallen man, the noose is blackened. It is darkened and hidden by the passions. However, when a man is freed from the passions and illumined by God, then during prayer he is able to see the light of his noose. In his triads, St. Gregory Palamas refers to this subject in many places. Citing various words of the saints, he ends by saying, do you understand clearly, brother, that the noose freed from passions can see itself as a light during prayer and shines with divine light? Indeed, the noose, seeing itself, sees itself as light. But St. Gregory continues, Such is every purified nature not covered with the veil of evil. When it is not wearing the veil of evil, it sees itself as a spiritual light. This vision of the light of the noose comes through the work of the Holy Spirit. The purified and illuminated noose, when clearly participating in the grace of God, also beholds other mystical and supernatural visions, for in seeing itself, it sees more than itself. It does not simply perceive some other object or simply its own image, but rather the glory impressed on its own image by the grace of God. This teaching indicates that the purified noose sees not its own image, but the glory of Christ mirrored in it by the grace of God. The saints see this image changed from glory to glory that is in quality of brightness in us as the divine radiance becomes more and more distinct. 
just as the sensory eye cannot active cannot be active unless light shines on it from outside, so the noose cannot see with its noetic sense unless the divine light shines on it. Briefly, we can say that according to the teaching of St. Gregory Palamas, the noose as the image of God is light, but it is darkened by passions. It is only when the divine light shines and the noose is purified that it can see not just its own light, but the shining which it formed, which is formed in its image by the grace of God. Sensory vision in itself cannot be of any help at all to a person unless there is also a sensory light. The same is true of the vision of divine light and the noose of man. St. Gregory Palamas developed all this teaching because the philosopher Barlaam maintained that through human knowledge, by the elaboration of human thought, one can see God and acquire knowledge of God. But this is entirely mistaken. In his book, St. Siloan the Athenite, Archimandridi Sophroni writes as follows about this natural light of the noose. Attaining these bounds where day and night come to an end, Job 26.10, man contemplates the beauty of his own noose, which many identify with divine being. They do not see a light, but it is not the true light in which there is no darkness at all. It is the natural light peculiar to the noose of man created in God's image. This light of the noose, which excels every other light of empirical knowledge, might still just as well be called darkness, since it is the darkness of divestiture and God is not in it. And perhaps in this instance, more than any other, we should listen to the Lord's warning, Take heed, therefore, that the light which is in you be not darkness. Luke 11.35 The first prehistoric cosmic catastrophe, the fall of Lucifer, son of the morning, who became the prince of darkness, was due to, this, due to his enamored contemplation of his own beauty, which ended up in his self-deification. In another place, the same monk writes about the natural light, which is the darkness of divestiture. If we would situate the spiritual whereabouts of this darkness, we could say that it is to be found on the outskirts of uncreated light. But when hesychistic prayer is practiced with due repentance and without the prayer being wholly directed up to God, the soul, de denuded of all its imaginings, may abide for a brief while in this darkness of divestiture without having beheld God, for God is, is ipso facto, is not yet in this darkness. Dwelling in the darkness of divestiture, the noose knows a peculiar delight and sense of peace. If at this point it turns in on itself, it can perceive something akin to light, which, however, is not yet the uncreated light of divinity, but a natural attribute of the noose created in the image of God. Clearing the frontiers of time, such contemplation approaches the noose to knowledge of the intransitory, thereby possessing man of new but still abstract cognition. Woe to him who mistakens this wisdom for knowledge of the true God and this contemplation for communion and divine being. Woe to him because the darkness of divestiture on the borders of true vision becomes an impenetrable pass and a stronger barrier between himself and God than the darkness due to the uprising of gross passion or the darkness 
of obviously demonic instigations or the darkness which results from loss of grace and abandonment by God. Woe to him, for he will have gone astray and fallen into delusion, since God is not in the darkness of divestiture. God reveals himself in light and as light. It is difficult for us to make a comparison between the text of St. Gregory Palamas and Archimandridi Sophroni on the subject of the light of the noose, for we lack the relevant experience. While externally there appear to be differences, we believe that the difference is a matter of style. We firmly believe that both fathers have experiences of these states and only express a different aspect of this experience. We have the feeling, without being absolutely sure, that Archimandridi Sophroni is referring more to the intelligence which man deifies and loves in himself. Therefore, he emphasizes epigrammatically that the darkness of divestiture constitutes an impenetrable covering of divinity and a wall separating man from God more than the passions, the darkening of the demonic suggestions or abandonment of God. In reality, this light of the noose is darkened, is darkness, and in saying this, he agrees absolutely with St. Gregory Palamas, as he also agrees absolutely with Palamas's teaching that theoria is pure action of God in man. The vision of uncreated divine light is impossible unless one is in a state of illumination by grace, a state in virtue of which the act of beholding God is itself, above all, fellowship with God, union with divine life. Personally, we cannot find a disagreement between these two eyewitnesses. They simply express themselves in different words, having in mind different conceptions which they wanted to confute. Anyway, it is a fact that when man's noose becomes becomes one spirit with the Lord, he sees spiritual things clearly. The healed noose is also granted vision of God. Naturally, it does not see the essence of God, but his energy. When the saints see the light, they see it when they acquire the divining communion of the Spirit. That is to say, whenever they are united with God, they see the garment of their deification, their noose being glorified and filled with the grace of the Word, beautiful beyond measure in his his splendor. This is how the noose is glorified. Then spiritual delight blossoms in the noose because when the noose is engaged in the vision of, of intelligible realities, its delight in them is such that it can hardly be dragged away. United with God, it becomes wise, good, powerful, compassionate, merciful, and long-suffering. In short, it includes within itself almost all the divine qualities. But when the noose withdraws from God and attaches itself to material things, Either it becomes self-indulgent, like some domestic animal, or like a wild beast, it fights with men for the sake of these things. As a result of the healing of the noose, the body too is healed. Naturally, when we say that the body is healed, we do not mean that it is freed from illnesses, even if this can succeed up to a point. We say up to a point because many illnesses, especially of a nervous nature, originate from deadness of the noose but the body is mainly freed from the passions of the flesh. St. Maximus says, When you see that your noose reflects upon its conceptual images of the world with reverence and justice, you may be sure that your body too continues to be pure and sinless. 
The noose which meditates on divine things also keeps the body pure from so-called bodily passions. First the noose is receptive to the pledge of the good things to come, then it rises towards the first noose, and being sanctified, is itself transformed with the body which is attached to it, to make it more divine. Thus it too is prepared for the absorption of the flesh by the spirit in the age to come. Since the body will taste the eternal good things, it is necessary too that it too is prepared by this life. All the saints who live this life follow the same method for healing and purifying the noose, and so they acquire the same teaching. We believe that the saints do not have their own particular views. They do not have different dogmatic positions. Since they have the same experience, they have the same teaching. If we see differences at some points, it is because we interpret their teachings with erroneous presuppositions. If we try to see the different expressions of each saint, since although they all have the same knowledge of God, they do not have the same wisdom, if we try to detect the real sense of each word, we will not find different teachings. In fact, we ourselves are fragmented and inexperienced in spiritual matters, cut off from the living tradition of the Church, and therefore we see differences in the Holy Fathers. The Apostle Paul writes, Be perfectly joined together in the same noose and in the same judgment. 1 Corinthians 1.10 The saints think the same. St. Gregory Palamas emphasizes that this supra-rational knowledge is common to all those who have believed in Christ above concept. All that we have cited shows that the noose which has been affected by the passions is sick, weak, dying, deprived of its natural state, and in need of healing. The orthodox ascetic method describes how the noose is cured. This cure is indispensable because with it, the noose is purified and acquires spiritual knowledge of God, and this spiritual knowledge constitutes the salvation of man. Chapter 3, the third section on the curing of the heart. The highest aim of man is to attain knowledge of God, for this is his salvation. Naturally, when we say knowledge of God, we do, we do not mean knowledge in the head, but communion in being. That is, knowledge of God is communion with God. Where this communion is attained, there is salvation. But this communion takes place in the depths of the heart. There God meets with man, there he imparts his knowledge, there man gains a sense of his being. In order for this communion and vision of God to come about, the heart must be pure. The Lord affirmed this, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Matthew 5.8 The heart which has fallen ill and been made dead needs to be cured and purified in order to offer knowledge of God. The pure heart is the organ of knowledge, the organ of orthodox epistemology. In what follows, we shall concern ourselves with how the heart is cured. Repentance is the first healing medicine. The heart has to repent and come to its natural condition. If a life of, of sin has led it to an unnatural state, a life of repentance will bring it back to its right state, will give it life. St. John of the Latter offers precise definitions of repentance. Repentance is the renewal of baptism. Repentance is a contract with God for a fresh start in life. Repentance goes shopping for humility. Repentance is ever distrustful of bodily comfort. 
Repentance is critical awareness and a sure watch over oneself. Repentance is reconciliation with the Lord. Repentance is the purification of conscience. In another place, the same saint tells how all who have been defiled after baptism must be purified and must remove the pitch from themselves with the unceasing fire of the heart and the oil of divine compassion. God's compassion and the heart's fire heal a person of his sicknesses. The deeper the repentance, the more contrition increases. A contrite heart is one which lives in repentance. The prophet King David says, The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart God will not despise. Psalm 51.17 God dwells in a contrite heart. Everyone who comes to the king to receive remission of his debt needs to have unutterable contrition. According to St. Nicias Stathatos, the distinguishing marks of truth are not in faces, forms, and words, nor does God reside in those things, but truth, as well as God, resides in contrite hearts, in spirits of humility, and in souls enlightened by the knowledge of God. In speaking of contrition of heart, we must describe how the heart is made contrite and what this contrition is. St. Mark the ascetic, beginning by saying that it is impossible for a person to be rid of evil without contrition of heart, defines precisely what makes it contrite. The heart is made contrite by threefold self-control, in sleep, in food, and in bodily relaxation. Bodily relaxation produces self-indulgence, which is receptive to evil thoughts. Contrition is also created by wise solitude and complete silence, Hezekiah. And St. Mark the ascetic, coming back to this theme, emphasizes that vigil, prayer, and patient acceptance of what comes constitutes a breaking that does not harm but benefits the heart. Bodily labor and being deprived of necessities produces a pain in the heart which is useful and salutary to the person. St. Philotheus of Sinai, who lays stress on the fact that we must do all we can to humble the arrogance of our heart, underlines ways to achieve this. The heart is crushed and humbled by remembrance of our former life, that is, Adam's life before the fall, and by recalling all the sins we have committed since childhood, except, of course, carnal sins, for the remembrance of these is harmful. The memory of sins engenders tears and moves us to give heartfelt thanks to God and perpetual and vivid mindfulness of death gives rise to godly sorrow. Likewise, the soul is humbled by the recollection of our Lord's passion and the many blessings we have received from God. The carnal man, that is the man who is far from God, is distinguished by hardness and coarseness of his heart. The man of God who receives the Holy Spirit is distinguished by the refinement of his heart. The heart is sensitized and softened when it has been purified of passions and is contrite. The fathers also describe harmful contrition. According to Mark the ascetic, there is a breaking of the heart which is gentle and makes it deeply penitent, and there is a breaking which is violent and harmful, shattering it completely. The good kind of breaking happens in a spirit of compunction and an atmosphere of prayer. That is to say, a contrite heart prays unceasingly to God. It does not despair, but hopes in God's great love for man. 
so it is marked by hope. St. Simeon, the new theologian, an experienced spiritual physician, recognized that long and untimely sorrowing of the heart darkens and disturbs the mind. It banishes pure prayer and compunction from the soul and creates a painful pining of the heart which results in hardness and extreme callousness. This is how the demons bring about despair. Thus a breaking that is not enclosed in compunction and prayer darkens the person further and, and is a favorable climate for the devil's injection of despair and hopelessness. Genuine heartbreak, which, as we said, is, is not injurious to the heart, is marked by the presence of prayer, compunction, and hope in God. A broken heart comes with prayer and has very many results. An anonymous hesychist presents the benefits of this salutary method. Break your heart with prayer, O monk, so that the power of the devil may be completely broken away from your heart by perfection. Just as a man fears to take hold of a fiery and sparkling iron, so the devil fears the breaking of a heart, for the breaking of the heart breaks his cunning completely. In the relaxed and unbroken heart, as soon as it is confronted with the devil's fantasy, the heart accepts it at once and is deeply impressed by the idea of the fantasy, but in a broken heart there is no room for any fantasy. Where there is contrition of heart, all satanic evil is put to flight and every demonic action is set ablaze. Break your heart with prayer so that sin may be broken away from your heart. Did the devil see a heart wounded by the contrition of prayer? He at once remembered the blows which Christ endured from man, and therefore he took fright and lost courage. Beloved one, break the devil with the contrition of your heart, so that you may enter triumphant into the joy of your Lord. Break your heart with prayer, so that Satan who, de who deceives you may be broken to bits. In order in some way to interpret the heart's contrition, we must speak of pain in the heart. We must say from the start that when we speak of pain in the heart, we are mainly referring to the spiritual heart. The spiritual heart aches, is in pain. When this arises by the grace of God, it has no tragic consequences for the physical heart. That is to say, while the spiritual heart is breaking, is crushed, is suffering from the joyful sorrow of living in repentance, the physical heart continues its natural course without any ill effects. In most cases, cardiologists cannot detect the illness for the simple reason that the physical heart of the person with heartache is not sick. Heartache is necessary because even the strictest ascetics, ascetic life is bogus and fruitless without it. And certainly in order for this heartache, so essential for the spiritual life to exist, one must not fully satisfy bodily hunger. For just as a sheep does not mate with a wolf, so suffering of the heart does not couple with satiety for the conception of virtues, says St. Mark the ascetic. All the virtues are conceived through heartache. A Christian life without pain is bogus. Pain of the heart is essential for salvation. It must be realized that the true sign of spiritual endeavor and the price of progress is suffering pain. That is the sense of our shameful sinfulness. When with sorrow and weeping we fall down at the feet of Jesus like the sinful woman at the house of Simon the leper in Bethany, she heard him say, your sins are forgiven. He who is without pain bears no fruit, because prayer 
without pain is counted as a miscarriage, according to St. Isaac the Syrian. Pain of the heart and physical striving bring to light the gift of the Holy Spirit bestowed in holy baptism upon every believer, buried in passions through our negligence in fulfilling the commandments, and brought once more to life by repentance through the ineffable mercy of God. Do not, because of the suffering that accompanies them, cease to make painstaking efforts, lest you be condemned for fruitlessness and hear the words, Take the talent from him. Matthew 25:28. Every struggle in the soul's training, whether physical or mental, that is not accompanied by suffering, that does not require the utmost effort, will bear no fruit. The kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. Matthew 11:12. Many people have worked and continue to work without pain, but because of its absence, they are strangers to purity and out of communion with the Holy Spirit because they have turned aside from the severity of suffering. Those who work feebly and carelessly may go through the motions of making great efforts, but they harvest no fruit, because they undergo no suffering. According to the prophet, unless our loins are broken, weakened by the labor of fasting, unless we undergo an agony of contrition, unless we suffer like a woman in travail, we shall not succeed in bringing to birth the spirit of salvation in the ground of our heart. For it is written, we must go through many tribulations to enter the kingdom of God. Acts 14.22 This pain in the spiritual heart, which is also felt physically without being injurious, when, when it is in accord with what is emphasized by the Orthodox tradition, is essential for our salvation, because it helps all the powers of our soul to be concentrated there. The noose is then more easily attached to the heart and returns to it. This pain, which in some way creates a wound, is often connected with weeping. This is called tears. A person bursts loudly into tears. This is called mourning. And we know from the works of our fathers that this wound, which contributes to salvation, is felt more keenly than a bodily wound. But as we shall see in what follows, heartbreak creates an ineffable pleasure. St. Theophan the Recluse writes characteristically about this wound, which creates metaphysical pain. Take care that your attention is in your heart and not in your head, and hold to this not only when you are standing in prayer, but at all other times at well. Try to acquire a kind of soreness in your heart. Constant effort will achieve this quickly. There is nothing peculiar in this. The appearance of this pain does not have the meaning of a wound, while it it is essentially a pain. This wound is not a physical wound and a physical pain which, which would discourage and threaten life. It is a wound from the intoxicating love felt by the penitent soul like that of the prodigal son and the union of the divine embrace. It is an expiatory suffering and an insatiable sweetness, an inexpressible mystical contemplation an inseparable bond with God, a desire to leave this life, and a loving conversation with God. This pain will help you to gather all the powers of your soul into this beloved labor, and God, seeing your effort, will give you what you seek. Then certain changes and divine states will occur in your heart. St. John of the Latter witnesses to this fact, which is probably his own experience, that in some people... This metaphysical pain was so great 
The heart ached so much that blood literally poured from the wounded heart and mouth. I have seen men who reached the ultimate in mourning with the blood of a suffering and wounded heart actually flowing out of their mouths. And I was reminded of the saying, like grass I am cut down and my heart is dried up. Psalm 102.4 The outpouring of tears is another result of this suffering. The Lord blessed those who mourn. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Matthew 5.4 So godly mourning and the tears that come from it are a commandment of Christ. Tears are a way of life. Just as repentance and mourning are a way of life, so are the tears which pour from the repentant and broken heart. In speaking of tears, we must point out that there are inner tears of the heart and outward tears of the body. The heart often weeps, is washed by a river of tears. The spiritual combatant who lives in the spirit of the Orthodox tradition often catches his heart weeping. Usually these tears of the heart appear outwardly. Sometimes they are in secret. But let us look at the value of tears. The saints urge the Christian to weep, because in that climate the heart is purified and acquires spiritual sensitiveness, overcoming its hardness. St. Isaac urges, drench your cheeks with the weeping of your eyes. He urges us particularly to call upon Mary and Martha to teach us mournful cries. St. Nihilus, the ascetic, teaches us to pray first for the gift of tears. Likewise, if we pray with tears, all we ask will be heard. The value of tears is great. The fathers who experience this fact are typical. Tears are a baptism. Greater than baptism itself is the fountain of tears after baptism, even though it is somewhat audacious to say so. Tears are a sign of a man reborn. According to Abba Piman, Weeping is the way which the scriptures and our fathers give us when they say, Weep, truly there is no other way than this. It is, as we have said, a way of life. It is impossible for us to know ourselves without tears. That is to say, if we realize our sinfulness, which is a sign of divine grace in us, if we have acquired the gift of self-knowledge and self-reproach, then we spontaneously begin to weep. Therefore, no one should leave himself dead and go and weep for another. Tears in a man show that Christ has touched his eyes and given him spiritual sight. Tears open the eyes of the soul. It is necessary, too, because as Abba Arsenios teaches, a man will have to weep at some time in any case. He who weeps voluntarily here on earth will not weep in the next life. On the contrary, he who does not weep here will weep eternally hereafter. St. Simeon, the new theologian, who with the others can be characterized as a theologian of tears, says that tears are a sign of life. As babies cry when they come from their mother's womb, and this is a sign of life, so it is with spiritual birth. Tears are a part of human rebirth. If the baby does not cry, it is not said to be alive. Therefore, according to St. Simeon, Human nature has mourning and tears as a concomitant from birth. He said this because many people in his his time maintained that not all people have the same nature and therefore they cannot all shed tears. But this is not so. The saint adds that tears are just as necessary for the soul as food and drink are for the body.
He who does not weep every day or every hour will destroy his soul and cause it to perish from hunger. When a person has acquired a preference for goodness, zeal, patience, humility, and love for God, the soul that at present is like rock will become a fountain of tears. St. Simeon has recorded the information found also in Scripture that some adults at the moment of their baptism have shed tears, having been smitten with compunction by the coming of the Holy Spirit, yet not painful tears of suffering, but such as were sweeter than honey. They were shed from their eyes without pain and without sound. All these things show on the one hand that tears are necessary for our spiritual life, and on the other hand that they are a way of life, that they are what nourishes the soul, and further that they have many forms. It is to this that I wish to, uh, to direct attention in what follows. Nicetus de Thato's disciple of St. Simeon, the new theologian, teaches that tears of repentance are one thing, and tears that come from holy compunction are another. The former are like the river which overflows and sweeps down all the walls of sin, whereas the latter are to the soul like rain falling on the fields and like snow on the grass. They nourish the grain of knowledge and make it luxuriant and fruitful. He also emphasizes that the taste of tears sometimes brings bitterness and pain, sometimes joy and gladness, to the noetic feeling of the heart. The tears of repentance create bitterness and pain. The tears of the pure heart, the heart which has attained its freedom from passions, are tears of pleasure and indescribable sweetness. Almost the same difference is found between tears from the fear of God and tears from the love of God. Tears have many effects. They purify a person's heart from the stain of sins and then enlighten his heart. The fathers teach that when the devil comes to a person's soul, he drops various images and then withdraws, leaving the idol of sin in the heart. Tears clean this idol away. The place of the heart is washed and the cloud which covered it disappears. Abba Pimon teaches, he who wishes to purify his faults purifies them with tears. In another place he says, in all our afflictions, let us weep in the presence of the goodness of God until he shows mercy on us. So where there is mourning, there is not a trace of slander or criticism. Actually, it has been confirmed by our experience in the church that tears can wash away sins as water washes away something written. At our tears, the Holy Spirit comes and rests upon our heart, purifies us and washes us from the filth of wickedness. Tears not only purify, but they also illumine the soul. In reality, the grace of God, which comes through repentance, brightens and sanctifies the heart of man. The abyss of mourning, that is, great mourning, sees consolation. With purity of heart comes illumination. Illumination is an ineffable energy which is unknowingly perceived and invisibly seen. Mourning brings comfort according to Christ's beatitude. This comfort is the solace of a sorrowing soul. Divine help is the renewal of a soul depressed by grief, which, in a wonderful way, transforms painful tears into painless ones. And Nicetus Tathatos teaches that no one can attain the potential likeness to God unless he has previous, previously, through hot tears, purified the filth existing within him and kept the commandments of Christ. In this way we cast off deformity and become capable of enjoying the glory of God. The fathers do also point to tears of delusion. 
It is possible for some tears to be activated by the devil. When a person weeps and then boasts, he is deluded. Therefore the fathers warn us, do not grow conceited if you shed tears when you pray. No one should boast and think that he is superior to many others. The aim of our tears is that through them we may be cleansed of the filth of the passions. When we forget the purpose of tears and become proud, we can lose our head. Many people, shedding tears for their sins, forget what tears are for, and so in their folly they go astray. There are many kinds of tears, such as sentimental tears, egotistic tears, tears of Satan, tears of God, and so on. But we should strive to transform these sentimental tears as well. The fathers of the church urge us to weep, even if our weeping has an element of egoism. Then through self-reproach, through turning our attention to ourself and to our sins, by ceasing conversations with others and by talking with God, looking at our own wretchedness, we can be transformed and find salvation. I believe that the terrible condition in which many people find themselves is due to the fact that we have become estranged from weeping. We do not cry. Therefore, when we are burdened with various difficulties, when our nerves are strained, when our whole inner atmosphere is in a wretched state, then with a thought of self-reproach, we should try to weep. If we make an attempt, God will send his grace and the tears will become a way of life, and so our heart will be purified of passions. Repentance, mourning, contrition, tears are closely connected with the fire which is engendered in the heart. Repentance is helped by the fire which the Holy Spirit kindles in the person's heart. The Lord, referring to this fire which he kindles in the heart, said, I came to cast fire upon the earth, and would that it, would that it were already kindled. Luke 12.49 As Christ approaches the heart, the heart is set on fire because of the existence of the passions, and we shall analyze in what follows. This is the burning which the disciples felt as they were journeying towards Emmaus. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened the scriptures to us? Luke twenty four thirty two. This fire burning of the passions of the heart is experienced as light. When the Apostle Paul had this experience, he wrote, Before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart? 1 Corinthians 4, 5. And the Apostle Peter expresses his own experience when he writes, Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. 2 Peter 1.19 The heart experiences the grace of God first as a fire, fire which burns up sin and the passions, and then when the passions burn away, it experiences God's grace as light illuminating our whole inner man. This teaching that we, f that we first experience God's grace as a fire and then as light is analyzed by St. John of the Ladder. He says that when the super-celestial fire comes to dwell in the heart, it burns some because, because they still lack purification and it enlightens others according to the degree of their purification, the degree of their perfection. The same thing is called both the fire which consumes and the light which illuminates. That is why some people come from the prayer as if from a fiery furnace and feel a relief from defilement, while others, when prayer is ended, feel as if they were coming out resplendently with light and clothed in a garment of humility and joy. This fire which the heart of man perceives is often perceived by the body as well. 
Thus the person thinks that he is in hell and burning with the flames of hell. This is important and salutary, for such repentance heals the soul, and we know very well that the greater the repentance, the more effective the healing. Also, the more the fire of repentance is experienced, the more the preconditions are created for the vision of the uncreated light. According to the Apostle Paul, God is a consuming fire, Hebrews 12.29. Our whole labor, says St. John of the Latter, continues until the fire of God enters our sanctuary that is our heart. This God who is fire consumes all lusts, all stirrings of the passions, all predispositions, and all hardness of heart, both within and without, both visible and spiritual. Repentance is a deed and moment of grace, but we, we too must help true repentance to come, that is, help God's fire to come into our heart. Besides, the whole ascetic life is a cooperation, a synergy of the divine and human wills. The Fathers teach that we are cleansed from the passions either through voluntary sufferings or through involuntary misfortunes. Voluntary suffering is godly sorrow, repentance, the sense of the fire of repentance. Involuntary misfortunes are the various trials of our lives. When the voluntary ones come first, involuntary ones do not follow. Therefore, we must strive to let repentance, God's fire, develop in us so that we may be delivered from involuntary misfortunes. We must always keep in our hearts this fire of repentance and the warmth that comes from it. The devil is afraid of a monk living in mourning and does not dare to approach him. Therefore, a faithful and prudent monk is one who has kept unquenched the warmth of his vocation, who adds fire each day to fire, fervor to fervor, zeal to zeal. Chapter 3 on Intelligence and Thoughts Intelligence and Thoughts play a leading role in the sickness and the cure of the soul. It is in them that one is provoked to evil, that simple thoughts become compound, and as a result a desire is conceived which leads one to commit sin. Therefore, an orthodox therapeutic method must look into the subject of thoughts and the inner meaning of intelligence. This is why we are now going to examine intelligence on the one hand and thoughts on the other in order to see how the curing of our souls takes place. Number one, intelligence. We've already said that the soul of man created by God is intelligent and noetic. St. Thalassios writes that God created intelligent and noetic beings with the capacity to receive the spirit and to attain knowledge of himself. He has brought into existence the senses and sense objects to serve such beings. While the angels have intelligence and noose, men have reason, noose and senses, since man is a microcosm and a summing up of the whole creation. So it is through the noose and the intelligence that man knows God. The intelligent energy of the soul is linked with the noetic energy. There is no identity between the two, as we shall see in what follows. When we spoke of the soul, we saw that it was created in the image of God. And since God is Trinitarian, noose, word, and spirit, the same is true of the soul as well. It has noose, word, and spirit. To say that the soul has noose, word, and spirit is to make certain presuppositions. The first presupposition is that according to the teaching of St. Gregory Palamas, man's representation of the Trinitarian mystery 
is not meant in the sense that the Trinity should be understood anthropomorphically, but man is to be understood in a Trinitarian way. That is to say, the Trinitarian God is not interpreted on the basis of man, but man is interpreted on the basis of the Trinitarian God. And this interpretation is not merely psychological and human, but revelatory. This means that it is only when a person is within the revelation, as all the saints lived, that he can grasp this fact. The second presupposition is that while man has noose, word, and spirit in accordance with the Trinitarian mode of being, man's noose, word, and spirit are not hypostases, as in the case with the persons of the Holy Trinity, but energies of the soul. So these three are inseparable from one another, but they do not have a personal character. The noose is the eye of the soul, which some fathers call the heart. The word is spiritual knowledge, implanted in the noose as always coexisting with it. As Christ the word is he who reveals the will of the noose, that is of the Father, so also the word of man is that which reveals what the noose perceives and experiences. And just as it is impossible to conceive of a word without spirit, so also in man the word is linked with the spirit. And just as the spirit, which is a particular hypostasis, is an ineffable love of the begetter towards the ineffably begotten word himself, so also the spirit in man is a certain impulse of the noose, which involves an extension in time in conjunction with our word and requires the same intervals and proceeds from incompletion to completion. These things have been said in order to show the position and the value of the word in man's soul. The word is that which expresses the experience of life of the noose, and this takes place in the spirit. In many fathers, as in St. Maximus the Confessor, the word is also called the logisticon or the intelligence. The word in man is said inwardly but also expressed outwardly. Outward silence does not mean that there is not an inner word. But after a study of the works of the fathers, it can be asserted with some caution that the word is inward and outward and is united with the noose, while the intelligence, which is connected with the mind, is the organ through which the word is expressed. Thus it can be stated that there is a subtle difference between the word and intelligence, just as there is between the word and the mind. St. Thalassios teaches that the intelligence by nature submits to the logos. The intelligent man must submit to the word. The mind, according to St. Gregory Palamas, is not the eye of the soul. The noose is the eye of the soul, while the mind deals with the sensory and the intellectual. He writes, When someone speaks of the eyes of the soul, which have experience of the heavenly riches, do not confuse them with mind. The latter exercises its faculties on sensory and intellectual things. That is to say, it is not the mind but the noose which knows the heavenly treasure, treasures. The mind simply makes thinkable the things which man's noose lives experientially. God is revealed to the noose, but the mind records this experience in intelligent sentences. It is usually said that the man is an intelligent, logical being, in the sense that he has intelligence and thinks. But in the patristic theology, an intelligent person is not one who simply has intelligence or speech, but one who by means of the word and intelligence, seeks to find God and to unite with him. A person who purifies his noose 
where God is revealed and afterwards, through the word and mind, expresses this inner experience, is intelligent. Apart from this setting, man is without word and does not differ from the dumb animal. To be sure, he has intelligence and the word, but because he is not connected with God, he's dead. The dead soul manifests the dying of the word as well. This is how the word functioned in man before the fall. The noose perceived God and the word expressed the experiences of the noose. A pure noose sees things correctly. A trained intelligence puts them in order. According to the theology of St. Thalassios, which we mentioned before, the intelligence by nature submits to the word and disciplines and subjugates the body, while it is an insult to the intelligence to be subject to what lacks intelligence, that is the body, and concern itself with shameful desires. It is also an act of depravity for the soul to abandon the Creator and worship the body. Thus man's noose before the fall had a relationship with God, and the Word expressed this experience and life with the help of the mind, that particular instrument of the body. But after the fall came the dying and the death of the soul. As a result, it became impossible for the whole inner world of the soul to function naturally and for all the harmonized, harmonized inner functions to go on. Man's noose was confused, hidden by the passions, and overcome by impenetrable darkness. The word, not having to express the experiences of the noose, was identified with the mind. Thus the intelligence was raised above the noose and now holds sway in fallen man. In fact, this is the sickness of the word and of the intelligence. The intelligence is overnourished. It has been raised to a greater position than the noose and has captured the word. The overnourished intelligence is the source of great abnormality in the spiritual organism. Arrogance, with all the energies of egoism, which is the source of the abnormality, is raging there. What Archimandridi Sophroni writes about the movements of the intelligence in fallen man and about the abnormality which this creates in the whole spiritual organism is characteristic. I quote it in its entirety because it is very expressive. Quote, the spiritual struggle is a manifold struggle, but the struggle with pride strikes deepest and is the most grievous. Pride is the supreme antagonist of divine law, deforming the divine order of being and bringing ruin and death in its train. Pride manifests itself partly on the physical plane, but more essentially on the plane of the thought and spirit. It, er it arrogates priority for itself, battling for complete mastery, and its principal weapon is the reasoning mind. Intelligence, for example, will, re will reject the commandment, judge not that ye be not judged, as nonsensical, urging that the faculty of being able to judge is a distinctive quality in man, which makes him superior to the whole world and affords him the power to dominate. In order to assert its superiority, the intelligence points to its achievements, to its creativeness, producing many convincing proofs purporting to show that in the age-old experience of history, the establishment or affirmation of truth falls entirely within its province. Intelligence, functioning impersonally, is by nature only one of the manifestations of life in the human personality, one of the energies of the personality. Where it is allotted priority in the spiritual being of man, it begins to fight against its source, that is, its personal origin. Rising, as he thinks, to the furthest heights, Descending as he believes to the lowest depths, man aspires to contact the frontiers of being 
in order as, as is his way to define it. And when he cannot achieve his purpose, he succumbs and decides that God does not exist. Then continuing the struggle for predominance, boldly and at the same time miserably, he says to himself, if there is a God, how can I accept that I am not that God? Not having reached the frontiers of being and having attributed to himself this infinity, he stands up arrogantly and declares, I have explored everything and nowhere found anything greater than myself, so I am God. And it is a fact that when man's spiritual being is concentrated on and in the mind, reason takes over and he becomes blind to anything that surpasses him and ends by seeing himself as the divine principle. The intellectual imagination here reaches its utmost limits and at the same time it, its fall into the darkest night. End quote. No wise people without God can have pure word and pure intelligence. St. Gregory of Sinai says only the saints through purity have become intelligent in accordance with nature. None of those wise in words have had pure intelligence because they corrupted it from the start with evil thoughts. In order to see the corruption of intelligence in fallen man and what it does to our whole spiritual organism, we shall examine three levels on which fallen intelligence enters. First, in our relationships with God. Whereas it was the noose that attained experience of God, now fallen intelligence undertakes to do this. Thus intelligence attempts to create arguments to demonstrate the existence of God, and this naturally is absolutely impossible to achieve. For the only argument for the existence of God is the pure noose's experience. Therefore, in its attempt to advance alone on the path of the knowledge of God, Fallen intelligence fails because it either does not meet God at all or creates a false image of God. Thus, from time to time, various philo philosophical theories about God and various religions have been created. The heresies which have shaken the Church of Christ were due to this arrogant conceit of intelligence. Therefore, it is emphasized by the fathers that the saints do not theolo theologize in the Aristotelian way, that is, through intelligence and philosophy, but in a manner but in the manner of a fisherman, that is, through experience, like the apostles through the Holy Spirit, after inner purification and disclosure of the noose. On this point, the dialogue which took place between St. Gregory Palamas and Barlaam, the philosopher, is characteristic. Barlaam asserted that man's intelligence alone is worthy of receiving knowledge of God. This is the noblest element in man's being. Then he claimed that what the prophets saw in the Old Testament and the apostles saw on Mount Tabor was symbol, and therefore the philosophers had more authentic knowledge of God than the prophets and the apostles. So he called vision of the uncreated light inferior to our intellection. In reply, St. Gregory taught that the saint's theoria is not from without, but from within, through inner transformation and purification. Therefore the light is not symbol, is not simply an external and material symbol, but a natural symbol, that is, energy of uncreated grace. The uncreated light is not a phantom and symbol when, which comes and goes, and so it is not inferior to the energy of intellection, but it is ineffable, uncreated, eternal, timeless, unapproachable, dazzling, infinite, unbounded, invisible to angels and men, archetypal beauty, immutable, glory of God, glory of Christ, glory of the Spirit, ray of divinity. In reply to Barlaam's view that the uncreated light is inferior to our intellection, he writes, 
O earth and heaven and all those who see in them the light of the kingdom of God, the beauty of the age to come, the glory of the divine nature, are all those, they all are lower than intellection. The uncreated light is the glory of the divine nature, the beauty of the age to come. Barlaam's mentality of raising philosophy higher than the vision of God, a thing which compelled St. Gregory Palamas to call him a philosopher rather than one who sees God, is the attitude of all heretics who have wanted to replace revelation by philosophy and vision of God by knowledge coming from overuse of intellectual thought. Actually, when human intelligence has dominion in man, it leads him to a variety of heretical theories. Here the difference between philosophers and theologians is evident. The former philosophize about God. The latter, after purifying their noose, behold God. The former have a darkened noose and interpret everything one-sidedly through intelligence, while the Holy Fathers, the real theologians, acquire experience of God through their noose, and then intelligence serves their noose by expressing this inner experience in propositions. The way of knowing God in patristic theology is different from that of the philosophers. True knowledge of God is founded on humility. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5.3 On purity of heart, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Matthew 5.8 On keeping the commandments of Christ, anyone who transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. 2 John 9 On love, if one loves God, one is known by him. 1 Corinthians 8.3 It is not through human wisdom, through mental wealth and intelligence that one can know God. The wisdom of God was unknown to the rulers of the age. For had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. 1 Corinthians 2.8 In fact, the unspiritual man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 2.14 Secondly, fallen intelligence affects our relation to ourselves, that is, our knowledge of ourselves. Many people, influenced by Pythagorean self-knowledge, try to find themselves and acquire knowledge of themselves through intelligence. But according to St. Gregory Palamas, this is a heresy of the Pythagorean and Stoic philosophers. The attempt to investigate oneself by intelligence can quickly end in schizophrenia, for one will attribute one's inner problems to other causes and so will fall into melancholy and anguish. The method of orthodox therapeutic treatment and orthodox self-knowledge consists in making the noose humble and guileless, not by syllogistic, analytical, and divisive methods, but by painful repentance and assiduous asceticism, as St. Gregory Palamas says and we have explained before. Thus we acquire knowledge of our inner world not through intelligence, but through watchfulness, purification of the noose, ascetic living, and repentance. In attempting to keep his noose pure, a man becomes aware of his inner problems. He discovers the passions that hold sway in him. Thirdly, disturbance of intelligence appears in the way in which we approach our fellow men. Usually psychiatrists observe the thinking of their patients and work their way into, into it in order to be able to identify their illness. Thus much intelligence is used which may lead to erroneous inferences. When this extends into interpersonal relationships, it leads to their destruction, to the development of the passions of judgment and condemnation, which are not pleasing to God. Our own behavior towards our fellow men is not characterized by intelligence, but by love. We avoid judging others and classifying them in various categories. We try especially to do the reverse of what human intelligence dictates to us. 
We try not to see the sin and bad actions of our brother, but to have love and compassion towards him. According to St. Macarius of Egypt, Christians should strive not to pass judgment of any kind on any one, neither on a prostitute, nor on sinners, nor on disorderly persons. But they should look upon all persons with a single mind and a pure eye. We should behave in such a way that also, if someone is suffering from a bodily ailment, we cannot look at it and pass judgment on it. As spiritual fathers, we face people personally. That is, we divest ourselves of every image, characterization, and idea, and pray that God may reveal to us the person's real problem and guide us to give him the right therapeutic treatment. Each one interests us personally. In this way, we avoid judging the one whose soul is ill. We avoid placing people in categories. We try to offer true personal therapeutic treatment. This means that we stand personally before the one who is making his confession. From what has been said, it is plain that fallen man is possessed by the power and authority of the intelligence in his relations with both God and his neighbor. The rule of reason, which is the basis of the whole of Western civilization, is the foundation of every internal and external anomaly. We who live in the Orthodox Church are trying to restore things. Our, our objective is twofold. We're striving on the one hand to limit the authority of intelligence, and on the, on the other hand to discover our noose. We can see from the fact that in fallen man the noose is in deep darkness and intelligence constitutes the only source of existence, that in order to arrive at the condition before the fall and to be guided to the life according to nature, terms must be reversed. That is, noose and intelligence must, must each be put in its natural place as we have described. In other words, the intelligence must be restricted, the noose must be developed, the word must be brought to birth by the illumined noose, and then intelligence must formulate the noose's knowledge in words and sentences. Obedience to the will of God has a significant role to play in restricting intelligence. We strive not to place trust in our own judgment and our own opinions, which come from intelligence. Abba Dorotheus says, In all things that come upon me, I never devise to run around in quest of human wisdom, but I always act with the small power I have on whatever it is, and at the same time leave the whole to God. Indeed, the same saint has a whole chapter entitled, that a man ought not to rely exclusively on his own judgment. When the devil finds in him someone who, one with one bit of self-will or self-righteousness, he will cast him down through that. Similarly, we are told to obey the will of God uncritically as it is expressed in Scripture and in the works of the Holy Fathers of the Church. Our intelligence will certainly rebel and protest, but it is necessary to subject it to the will of God. And since it is possible not to know God's will in so many details of our daily life, we are required to obey a spiritual father who will guide us on our own spiritual journey. According to Abba Dorotheus, no one is more wretched, no one is more easily caught unawares than a man who has no one to guide him along the road to God. Thus disobedience is death, while obedience is life. St. John the Latter writes, Obedience is absolute renunciation of our own life, clearly expressed in our bodily actions. Or conversely, obedience is the mortification of the limbs while the mind remains alive. Obedience is unquestioning movement, death freely accepted, a simple life, danger faced without worry, a safe voyage, a sleeper's journey. Obedience is the burial place of the will and the resurrection of humility. To obey 
is to put aside the capacity to make one's own judgment. Obedience is self-mistrust up to one's dying day, in every matter, even the good. Obedience is mortification of one's own will, of one's own understanding, not in order that passion should be mortified, but that it should be transformed. Obedience practiced in the way proposed by the Church does not destroy intelligence, but heals it, placing it in its natural position. Therefore, it is life. The Church's long experience has shown that anyone who can be obedient can be cured of his soul's inner sicknesses, that his whole inner world can be transformed. Obedience is a means of progress for man. Along with restricting intelligence, we try through repentance and the ascetic life of the Church to purify the noose so that it may be illumined by God's uncreated energy. This is achieved by watchfulness, nipsis, and prayer, chiefly the noetic prayer of the heart, and by the whole active and contemplative life. Through all the means outlined by the Orthodox tradition, the noose receives grace, is vitalized, raised to its right position, and then sheds grace on the intelligence as well. In this way, intelligence becomes a servant of the noose that is favored with grace and we return to our natural state. Intelligence, which is not subjected to this noose, endowed with grace, is sick and creates innumerable anomalies in our life, while when it is subject to the noose, it is healthy and natural. This is the aim of the ascetic therapeutic training of the Church. Chapter 3 on Intelligence and Thoughts Number 2, Thoughts Logismi It is in the intelligent part of the soul that evil thoughts operate which excite desire and attempt to capture man's noose so that sin is committed. The development of sin starts with thoughts. Therefore, anyone who wishes to purify his inner world, to be released from sin, to be freed from the captivity of his noose, must keep his intelligence safe from the impact of evil thoughts. So in this section, we shall try to analyze what these thoughts are, what causes them, what results they produce in our spiritual organism, and finally, what methods cure us of them. This is a very crucial matter because our spiritual death or spiritual life depend on our confronting them. Furthermore, as we shall see in what follows, many physical abnormalities and illnesses originate from unbridled thoughts. What me are? When the fathers speak of thoughts, me. They do not mean simple thoughts, but the images and representations behind which they, which there are always appropriate thoughts. The images with the thoughts are called logismi. Images in some cases appear to take on visible form, while others are mostly products of the mind, but more often it is a combination of the two. As visible images also generate some thought of or other, ascetics label all images intrusive thoughts. The various satanic thoughts sometimes use as their vehicle what the senses bring to the noose. Sometimes they mobilize fantasy and disjointed memory, and they attack the person with that ulterior aim of effecting, effecting his capture. According to St. Hezekias the priest, most people are unaware that these thoughts are nothing but images of material and worldly things. As it appears from this text, Imagination plays a very important role in the formation of the image in us. Thus one can say that logismi are painters of various images and representations in our intelligence, most of them memories of the past. One brother who was being attacked by memories of the past said, My thoughts are old and new painters, 
Memories are troubling me, and idols of women. All things have their inner principles, words, or logi, with which they speak and communicate with man. According to St. Gregory of Sinai, Holy Scripture also calls these words of things thoughts. The words of things are also called conceptual images and vice versa. Their action is not material in itself, but it takes the form of material things, and its form changes. The words of things are used by the demons, and therefore they can also be called the words of the demons. St. Gregory of Sinai characterizes evil thoughts, or rather their onslaught, as a flowing river, which, through ascent to sin, is transformed into a deluge that drowns the heart. In speaking of thoughts and trying to pinpoint exactly what they are, I think that we must refer to the division made by St. Maximus. He says that some thoughts are simple, others composite. Thoughts which are not linked with passion are simple. Passion-charged thoughts are composite, consisting of a conceptual image combined with passion. The memory of a thing, when combined with passion, makes the thought passion-charged or composite. I think that at this point it is well to outline the distinction between a thing, a conceptual image, and a passion as St. Maximus analyzes them. Gold, a woman, a man, and so forth are things. The simple memory of gold, a woman, or a man is a conceptual image. A passion is mindless affection or indiscriminate hatred for one of these same things. An impassioned conceptual image is a thought compounded of passion and a conceptual image. Therefore, we, we must strive to separate the passion from the conceptual image so that the thought remains simple. And this separation can be made through spiritual love and self-control. Impassioned thoughts either stimulate the soul's desiring power or disturb its insensitive power or darken its intelligence. Evagrius emphasizes that there are thoughts which cut off and there are thoughts which are cut off. Evil thoughts cut off good ones, but also evil thoughts are cut off by good ones. He offers an example. The thought of giving hospitality for the glory of the Lord is cut off by the tempter who suggests the thought of hospitality for the sake of appearing hospitable in the eyes of others. Likewise, the thought of giving hospitality to gain human recognition is cut off when a better thought comes, which prompts us to be hospitable for the Lord's sake and for the sake of virtue. So it is possible for one thought to start off as evil, but through our own effort and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to be transformed into a good one, and vice versa. However, we shall look at this more analytically later when we speak of the curing from evil thoughts. At least we see here that there are thoughts which cut off and thoughts which are cut off, good thoughts and bad thoughts. The cause of evil thoughts. What we have written about the nature of evil thoughts also shows their causes. According to St. Gregory of Sinai, the origin and cause of evil thoughts lies in the splitting up through man's transgression of his single and simple memory. Before his transgression, man's memory was simple, that is, it had no passion, and it was turned entirely towards God. All the powers of the soul were centered on God. Immediately after the transgression, this simple memory was split up, 
St. Thalassios teaches that evil thoughts arise from three sources, the senses, the memory, and the body's temperament. The worst are those that come from the memory. I think that St. Isaac the Syrian gives us a starting point for seeing more clearly the causes of evil thoughts and what it is that provokes them. He teaches that the movement of thoughts in a man originates from four causes. Firstly, from the natural will of the flesh. Secondly, from imagination of sensory objects in the world which a man hears and sees. Thirdly, from mental predispositions and from the aberrations of the soul. And fourthly, from the assaults of the demons who wage war with us and all the passions. Therefore, as long as a person remains in this world, he cannot avoid thoughts and warfare. The basic cause of evil thoughts is the warfare of the devil. The majority of evil thoughts are from the devil. The devil's aim is to lead a man to sin either in thought or in action. He even waged war against Christ himself, naturally without any success. The demons who are always trying to lay hold of our soul do so by means of impassioned thoughts, so that they may cause it to sin either in the mind or in action. When a man thinks evil, he sins in thought, whereas when he does the will of the devil and gratifies his desire, he sins in action. The committing of sin is called sinning in action. The demons constantly sow thoughts in order to capture the noose. The saints recognize the seeds of the demons and advise people accordingly. St. Gregory of Sinai says that thoughts are the words of demons and the forerunners of passions. First comes the thought and then the sin is committed. According to Elias the Presbyter, demons wage war against our soul first through thoughts and not through things. Hearing and sight are responsible for the warfare waged through things, habit and the demons for that waged through the thoughts. The demons constantly implant impure and shameful thoughts. Each passion has its corresponding demon, and St. John of the Latter emphasizes that shameful and unclean thoughts in the heart come from the deceiving demon of the heart. The cunning of the demons in this warfare is great, and only the saints whose noose is pure and who have the gift of insight can distinguish it. Thus St. John of the Latter writes that he once noticed the demon of vainglory doing a double piece of work. In one brother, he sowed thoughts of vainglory, and at the same moment he revealed those thoughts to another brother, so that he would be praised as a thought reader, and thus fall into the sin and passion of vainglory. Therefore the devil's warfare against us by means of thoughts is harder than that waged by means of material things. But usually the devil takes his opportunity from the passions which exist in our soul in order to launch the appropriate warfare of thoughts. He knows the passions that are there, and he excites the soul at those points. The passions lying hidden in the soul provide the demons with the means of arousing impassioned thoughts in us. And since the most basic passion from which all the others are engendered is self-love, it is in the passion of self-love that the three most common forms of desire have their origin. When the heart of man inclines towards self-indulgence, it becomes a source of evil thoughts. From a pleasure-loving heart arise unhealthy thoughts and words. Since, they, since there are voluntary and involuntary thoughts, that is, thoughts which come to us unsought and thoughts coming from our own will, for involuntary ones arise from previous sins, while Voluntary ones are from our free will. Therefore, we can say that the voluntary thoughts are causes of the involuntary ones. The causes of thoughts are the passions. The causes of passions are sinful acts. 
In general, we can say that the thoughts which come from the demons capture the noose and lead it to commit sin in thought and deed. And when this sin is repeated many times and the organism acquires a habit, passion comes into being. Then from the passions, which in a way are the wounds of the soul, come the corresponding evil thoughts. It is the same as with wounds of the body. Something causes the body to be wounded, and as a result, the wound causes an irritation, whereupon the problem continues and increases further. At many points in his teaching, the Lord mentions that the evil thoughts come from within the heart. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, fornication, theft, false witness, slander. Matthew 15:19. Luke the Evangelist mentions that an argument arose among Christ's disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. But when Jesus perceived the thoughts of their hearts, he took a child and put him by his side. Luke 9, verses 46 and following. When the Lord appeared after the resurrection, he said to his disciples, Why are you troubled, and why do questionings arise in your hearts? Luke twenty-four thirty-eight. All these passages show that questionings come from within the heart of man. Indeed, the noose is the first to be attacked by the thought, but then passions work in the heart, and through them the devil takes the opportunity to put his own thoughts into play. Therefore it is said that questionings come from within the heart. The teachings of St. Diodocus of Photiki is related to this. The heart produces good and evil thoughts. However, it does not produce evil thoughts by nature, but from the memory of evil, of that first sin which is committed and which led to the habit. The heart conceives most of its evil thoughts as a result of the evil of the demons. However, we feel that they arise from the heart. Man's noose, being highly responsive, makes its own the thoughts sown in it by the evil spirits. The same happens also with the flesh. Since the flesh delights in being flattered by deception, and since there is a union between the soul and the body, the thoughts sown in the soul by the demons seem to come from the heart. The noose provides the nourishment of the heart. Whatever it has, good or bad, it transmits it directly to the heart. Since most of us are inexperienced in this spiritual combat and since the transmission takes place very quickly, we feel that the thoughts are produced by the heart. Aside from the devil and the passions, things in themselves engender thoughts. But as St. Gregory of Sinai teaches, things in themselves give birth to simple thoughts, while suggestions of the devil engender evil thoughts. So matter is not bad. What is bad are the shameful desires within us the passions in us, and the provocation on the part of the demons. Just as, as it is impossible to stop a water mill from turning and grinding the wheat or tares that we throw into it, so it is with our mind. It is in constant motion. It depends on us whether we give it spiritual meditation or works of the flesh. Therefore, when we are occupied with worldly concerns and matters of the flesh, and when we give ourselves over to pointless and useless conversation, these base thoughts multiply in us. So the use of the world and the being of the world are not bad, but what is bad is our own disposition, our own self-will. Certainly, aside from evil thoughts, there are good thoughts, those coming from God. How can we distinguish these thoughts? Those of us who are beginners in the spiritual life should ask experienced spiritual fathers, and especially those who have the gift of distinguishing spirits. In any case, one general teaching is that when a thought suggests something to us and joy comes, it is a sign that the thought is from God. The thoughts of the devil are full of disturbance and de dejection. St. Barsanufius teaches, 
when a thought suggests you to do something according to the will of God, and you find in this matter joy, and at the same time sorrow, which fights against it, know that this is from God. The thoughts which come from the devil are filled with disturbance and dejection, and they draw one after them, secretly and subtly. For the enemies clothe themselves in sheepskins, that is, they instill thoughts which in appearance are right, but within are ravening wolves. It must be noted that a thought is capable of evoking a joy which, however, comes from vanity and self-indulgent heart. Therefore, thoughts can be distinguished only by one who has tasted the grace of the Holy Spirit and has been cleansed from the passions which are found in the soul. Those who lack this experience should consult experienced spiritual fathers because the devil suggests righteous thoughts while he is unrighteous. Now that we have pointed out what thoughts are and what causes give rise to them, we must look briefly at the different kinds of thoughts. Thoughts are analogous to the passions. For each passion there is a thought. St. Cassian of Rome divides them into eight and analyzes at length the eight, eight thoughts of evil. These are gluttony, unchastity, avarice, anger, de dejection, listlessness, self-esteem, and pride. St. Thalassius says that there are three basic thoughts gluttony, self-esteem, and avarice. All other impassioned thoughts follow in their wake. These three thoughts correspond to the three great general passions, self-indulgence, love of glory, and avarice or love of possessions, to which the temptations of Christ refer. We must make mention of one great, disgraceful thought, that is blasphemy. St. John of the Latter, recognizing the wickedness and seriousness of thoughts of blasphemy, as well as the fact that they mainly attack those who are struggling in the spiritual life, devotes a whole chapter to describing them and presenting methods for ridding ourselves of these thoughts. He writes that the thought of blasphemy comes from pride. It attacks a man even during the liturgy, even at the time of preparation for Holy Communion. It attacks the noose and distracts it from the words of the prayer. It stops many from praying and cuts many off from communion. It causes the bodies of some to be worn away with grief. St. John of the Latter advises us not to regard ourselves as the cause of thoughts of blasphemy. They are the demon's words intended to estrange us from God and his church. Yet evil thoughts are the beginning of the devil's warfare against us. A thought planted by the devil develops until the sin is committed and leads to passion. Therefore, in what follows, we shall try to see this development of evil thoughts in the light of the experience of the Holy Fathers. St. Maximus teaches that the impassioned thoughts aroused by the passions lying hidden in the soul fight the noose and force it to give its assent to sin. When the noose has been overcome in this warfare, they lead it to sin in the mind, and when this has been done, they induce it, captive as it is, to commit the sin in action. After the action, the demons who have desolated the soul by means of these thoughts, retreat, but the specter or idol of sin remains in the noose. Thus, thoughts take the noose captive and leave it, lead it to lead it captive into sin. If the idol of sin is not driven away by intense and lasting repentance, it is a source of abnormalities in the spiritual organism. This is the general outline in the development of an intrusive thought and the course it takes but we would do well also to see a few details about it again as described by the fathers. The thought that has entered the soul's intelligence endeavors to capture the noose. To this end, it prompts a feeling of the pleasure to be afforded by one or other passion which is in the soul. This stage is called temptation 
and is not to be reckoned as sin. Prolonged delectation afforded by the passion attracts the attention of the noose. If the noose does not tear itself away from the suggested delights, it finds itself attracted, favorable conversation with them begins, coupling follows, and, and, and it comes to assent. The increasing pleasure captures the whole noose and the will as well. Thus the person's resistance becomes weak. Then the sin is committed. When the captures are repeated, the habit of a passion is formed, and then all man's natural forces are at its service. The presence and pro prolongation of pleasure are very important for the capture and activity of passion. Therefore the fathers advise mortifying the pleasure as far as possible, or better, its transformation when it captures the person's noose. Abba Dorotheus says that whenever passionate desires reappear in the soul of those who put up a fight, they are immediately rejected. Ezekiel writes about the mingling and uniting of the soul's thoughts with the provocation of the demon through fantasy. Its thoughts become entwined in the fantasy provoked by the devil, and so it comes to assent and to action. Fantasy plays an important role, especially in cases where the object or person is far from us but also when the person or object is seen, that is, when it is linked with the senses, then true fantasy magnifies things and increases their beauty in order to capture the noose and lead it to consent. From this point of view, we can say that impassioned thoughts blur and confuse the noose, fill it with impure images, and carry it unwillingly and forcefully towards sinful acts. It seems that a man's freedom gives its consent not only at the time when it receives the temptation, the proposal from the demonic thought, but also beforehand when the freedom's consent, the eye and ear of the soul are darkened. As Philotheus of Sinai teaches, the reason why a person looks on things adulterously is that the inner eye has become adulterous and darkened. And the reason for wanting to hear about foul things is that our soul's ears have listened to what the foul demons inside us have whispered to us. If a person is corrupted inwardly, the eye of his heart is defiled, and then his outward bodily senses are also corrupted. That is why man's struggle must first be carried on inwardly. Likewise, when a person keeps thoughts within him and elaborates them, pleasure arises and the noose comes to assent and action. As eggs warmed in dung hatch out, so unconfessed evil thoughts hatch evil actions. What has been said shows clearly the consequences of prolonged and elaborated thoughts. In the next section, we shall present these consequences. Chapter 3 on intelligence and thoughts and the consequences of evil thoughts. When a thought is prolonged in us, we become enslaved to the attraction. When a thought lingers within a man, this indicates his attachment to it. Attraction is a person's attachment to created things and his desire to realize them and acquire only those things. When the noose is disengaged from heavenly food, from the remembrance of heavenly things, it constantly offers itself to the sensory and created things of the world. This is called attraction. It is led there by the thought which lingers within it. The person becomes intemperate. He cannot control himself. He whose mind teems with thoughts lacks self-control. The person who is in thought does not fight the thought of sin, saying nothing against it, commits it bodily. When an evil thought lingers in someone and is not opposed but put into action, it reinforces the passion in him 
and then it fights and torments him further. Thoughts rot us and crush us, also creating problems in interpersonal relations. We spend all our time corrupting ourselves by the thoughts which we have against one another and tormenting ourselves. Evil thoughts defile and pollute our soul, they damage it, they poison it. Such is the cunning of the evil one, and with these arrows he poisons every soul. A man who is carried away by his thoughts is blinded by them, and while he can see the actual working of sin, he cannot see its causes. This acceptance of thoughts gives the devil mastery over him and can lead him even to suicide, since he cannot resist the power of the devil. An impure thought debases the soul, it throws a man's soul down to the ground. Impassioned thoughts stimulate the soul's desiring power, they disturb the insensitive power and the intelligence. It is in this way that the noose's captivity for spiritual contemplation and for the ecstasy of prayer is dulled. Without God, a man is dead. Anyone who continuously feels disturbed by thoughts and whose underbelly is aflame shows that he is far from the fragrance of the spirit. Intimacy with God is lost. When the noose associates with evil and sordid things, it loses its intimate communion with God. God cannot have communion with someone whose noose is constantly defiled by evil and impure thoughts. And God is disgusted by a man who accepts unclean thoughts while standing at prayer, just as an earthly king would be disgusted by a man who in his presence turned his face away and talked to his master's enemies. Not only does a man of unclean thoughts lose his intimacy with God and the fragrance of the Holy Spirit, but he is completely separated from God. For unclean thoughts separate God from man. God does not disclose his mysteries to one who is possessed by evil thoughts. Abadorothea says very clearly, a single evil thought can turn a man away from God and what it is taken in and adhered to. Since thoughts separate a person from God, they are followed by other bodily abnormalities. Anguish, insecurity, and physical illnesses are caused by thoughts. Physicians too have become aware of this, so they advise us not to keep thinking about things or worrying. One thought can let a person lie sleepless for a whole night. So we say that thoughts disturb a man and even break his nerves. Abba Theodorus said, A thought comes and bothers me. The results of evil thoughts are truly terrible. We have pointed them out very briefly, but we, would, we, we could have cited more patristic passages. We've tried to indicate the general abnormalities which they produce in our psychosomatic organism. A psychotherapeutic method must, however, also describe the ways in which the people are healed of evil thoughts and evil and demonic thoughts. We now come just to this topic. Chapter 3 on the Intelligence and Thoughts on the Curing of Evil Thoughts As with all diseases of the soul and the body, so also with thoughts there is preventative treatment as well as therapeutic treatment after the illness. We shall look at both. The preventative work is to try not to let the thought enter us and capture our noose. This is achieved by watchfulness, nepsis, attentiveness, hezekiah, and the cutting off of evil thoughts. The Apostle Paul instructs his disciple Timothy to be constantly watchful. As for you, always be watchful, 2 Timothy 4.5. The patristic writings contain an extensive analysis of this struggle. Watchfulness is also called the guarding of thoughts. St. John of the Latter teaches that it is one thing to guard thoughts and another to watch over the noose. Watching over the noose is higher than guarding thoughts. 
This is true in the sense that we defined earlier, that the noose is the eye of the soul, the heart, while a thought is what functions in a man's mind. It is one thing to try to keep the mind pure, and another to try to keep the noose, that is the heart, pure. Nevertheless, purity of thoughts is needed because it is impossible to keep one's inner self free from sin if one has evil thoughts. The patristic commandment is to concentrate our noose, the soul's energy, in its essence, to be watchful of thoughts and to fight against impassioned thoughts. It is, it is essential that we pay attention to our reflections, recollections, and notions. Indeed, in this struggle to keep the noose pure and have constant remembrance of God, we have to discard the good thoughts as well, because even with good thoughts, the news gradually forms the habit of withdrawing from God. The monk Siloan taught, The saints learned how to do battle with the enemy. They knew that the enemy uses intrusive thoughts to deceive us, and so all through their lives they declined such thoughts. At first sight, there seems to be nothing wrong about an intrusive thought, but soon it begins to divert the noose from prayer and then stirs up confusion. The rejection of all intrusive thoughts, however apparently good, is therefore essential, and equally essential is it to have a noose pure in God. We should never have a single thought in our heart, whether senseless or sensible. We should protect the eye of the soul from every thought, as we do the eye of the body from every harmful object. When a person becomes accustomed to this holy struggle of laying aside all thoughts, then the noose tastes the goodness of the Lord and acquires purity so that it can distinguish thoughts and store in the treasures of its memory those thoughts which are good and have been sent by God while casting out those which are evil and come from the devil. This watchfulness of the soul, this guarding of thoughts, is called inner Hezekiah. Therefore, in Orthodox teaching, Hezekiah is not simply stillness from outward stimulations. This too is the beginning of Hezekiah, especially for the beginner, but it is mainly stillness of the heart. St. Thalassius advises, seal your senses with Hezekiah and sit in judgment upon the thoughts that attack your heart. According to St. John of the latter, stillness of the body is the accurate knowledge and management of one's feelings and perceptions, but stillness of the soul is the accurate knowledge of one's thoughts and is an unassailable mind. Brave in determining, determined thinking, watching at the doors of the heart, Killing or driving off invading notions are the friends of Hezekiah. When a person perseveres in the struggle, and especially when the noose has been captivated by the kingdom of God, then the thoughts vanish just as the stars are hidden when the sun rises. Apart from watchfulness and stillness of the noose, another way to prevent the noose from being irritated is to avoid the causes which evoke thoughts. St. Maximus gives an example to show how we must struggle to maintain purity of the heart. As we know, the demons of passion either stimulate the soul's desiring power or disturb its insensitive power and its intelligence. Therefore, a monk should watch his thoughts and seek out and eliminate their causes. The soul's power of desire is stimulated by impassioned thoughts of women. Such thoughts are caused by intemperance in eating and drinking and by frequent and senseless talk with the women in question and they are cut off by hunger, thirst, vigils, and withdrawal from society. The insensitive power is disturbed by impassioned thoughts about those who have offended us. This is caused by self-indulgence, self-esteem, and the love of material things. It is on account of such vices that the passion-dominated person feels resentment, being frustrated or otherwise failing to attain what he wants. 
These thoughts are cut off when the vices provoking them are rejected and nullified through the love of God. Furthermore, in order to be rid of thoughts, one should struggle against passions, since it is from these that the demons find occasion to implant convenient thoughts. With regard to the passion of unchastity, St. Maximus advises, fast and keep vigils, labor and avoid meeting people. With regard to anger and resentment, be indifferent to fame, dishonor, and material things. With regard to rancor, pray for him who has offended you and you will be delivered. Another struggle is to reduce the, the pleasure-loving of the heart, because thoughts try to kindle pleasure and attract the noose. Along with the pleasure-loving of the heart, it is necessary to tackle the pleasure-loving of the body as well. Everything which evokes bodily pleasure and bodily comfort must be driven away by the athlete of the inner struggle. For if a person gives in to bodily pleasure, he will necessarily, even if he does not wish to, be led off by force to the Assyrians to serve Nebuchadnezzar. If a person does not take a very firm stand towards himself on the subject of pleasure, he will not be able to maintain or acquire his inner, inner freedom. As we pointed out a little earlier, we must avoid things and people that evoke evil thoughts in us. One ascetic, answering the question of a brother who said that he was struggling with memories of women and the desires of the past, said, Do not fear the dead, but flee from the living, and before all things persist in prayer. We surely are not asked to avoid all people. This is possible for a few who are seeking perfect purity in order to give themselves wholly to God, but we must avoid those people who are a temptation to us, not so much because they are bad, but because we ourselves are inwardly weak and susceptible to sickness. When a person makes it a principle to watch his noose and pay attention to matters and objects and people, he can learn from he can learn for which of them he has a passion. The fear of God helps to liberate us from warfare with thoughts. The fear of God is God's gift to man. He who receives this gift struggles all day not to do anything displeasing to God, or rather he does not simply struggle, but the fire of the fear of God melts every oncoming thought. But even if there is not this charismatic fear, let us at least of ourselves struggle to create the sense of the presence of God and of the judgment to come. As wax melts before the fire, so does an impure thought melt before the fear of God. Fear of God is the shepherd that leads the sheep that is thoughts. Without the shepherding fear, thoughts will be in confusion. Parallel with these things, toil and the ascetic life are a method of therapy. Fasting, vigils, and prayer help the noose to avoid capture by the oncoming thoughts. Waste your body with fasting and vigils and you will repulse the lethal thoughts of pleasure. Keep your body under control and pray constantly. In this way, you will soon be free from the thoughts that arise from your pre-possessions. St. Mark the ascetic teaches that if we do not want to be moved by evil thoughts, we must accept humiliation of soul and affliction of the flesh. And this must not be just on particular occasions, but always, everywhere, and in all things. These things which have been mentioned can be used by a person to prevent sickness due to thoughts. But also if he is sick, they are needed as a method of curing from thoughts. But let us look more analytically at how we can cure the soul which has been affected by thoughts. In the first place, one must not at all be agitated. The demon's effort is to create agitation in a person and then in the confusion to interfere more actively in the soul and to take it captive. 
Therefore, St. Maximus teaches, stand up courageously against the thoughts that surge over you, especially those of irritation and listlessness. Facing, facing thoughts with courage is a second martyrdom. The advice of all the fathers is not to be agitated when we are attacked by satanic thoughts. St. Barsanufius says, if the thought comes, do not be alarmed, but understand what it wants to do and counteract it without agitating, calling on the Lord. The bad thing is not that a thief enters the house, but that he takes what he finds in the house. Some people allow the thought to enter their noose and heart in order to hold a dialogue with it and overcome it by the power of Christ. This is done by a few who are abundantly blessed with the grace of Christ and who want to enter into face-to-face -face combat with the devil in order to destroy him. However, this is not possible for most Christians, who are powerless to take up this strenuous and dangerous combat. So most of us have to scorn intrusive thoughts. It must be said that the less experienced in spiritual matters a man is, the slower he is to perceive the entrance of the thought. Usually those who are practiced spiritual athletes perceive the thought before it has entered their intelligence, and even when it is preparing to wage war on the athlete. Some perceive the thought only when there is coupling, or when there has already been assent, or on the very threshold of action, or even after sin has been committed. The spiritually inexperienced man generally encounters sinful thoughts only after they have progressed unnoticed through the first stages of development, that is, after they have acquired a measure of strength, when the danger approaches of actually sinning. In any case, wherever he meets it, he must immediately fight against it, and the more practiced he is in this holy game, the more he perceives the thought in the first stages of, it, of its development. A better way than dialogue is to scorn the thoughts and cut them off. Archimandridi Sophroni presents the teaching of St. Suluan about the best method of fighting thoughts. The Yeronda was saying that the experience of the Holy Fathers shows various ways of combating intrusive thoughts, but it is best of all not to argue with them. The noose that debates with such a thought will be faced with its steady development and be bemused by the exchange will be distracted from remembrance of God, which is exactly what the demons are after. Having diverted the noose from God, confuse it, and it will not emerge clean. Stephen the hermit, out of whose hands a leopard fed, as he lay dying, from the latter, step seven, disputed with intrusive thoughts, as was his wont, and so found himself struggling against devils. St. Mark of Thrace, having tried to comfort his soul before departing from this life by enumerating his efforts, was kept swinging in the air for an hour, which suggests that it could have been for all time. Other fathers were more discriminating in their spiritual struggle. So it is not safe, especially in the beginning of the spiritual life, to let thoughts enter the heart. But as soon as we perceive them, we should counterattack and repulse them. To scorn a thought is a good way, especially for beginners in this struggle. Without entering into dialogue with the thought, we should refuse to do what it says to us, and in that way also weaken the passion itself. And fighting in this way, little by little, and with the help of God, he overcomes the passion itself. This is called resistance to a thought. Someone said to Abba Piman, Abba, I have, been, I have many thoughts, and they put me in danger. The old man led him out and said to him, Expand your chest and do not breathe in. To the man's answer that he could not do it, Abba, Abba Poiman replied, if you cannot do that, no more can you prevent thoughts from arising, but you can resist them. So we, 
we cannot prevent thoughts from coming to us. We need to oppose them. And the opposition consists on the one hand in utter scorn, on the other hand in not doing what they say. If we do not do anything about them, in time they are spoiled, that is to say they disintegrate. Just as when someone shuts a snake or a scorpion in a bottle, in time it will die. So it is with evil thoughts, they are suggested, that are, they are suggested by the demons, they disappear through patience. When a thought led Abba Agathon to criticize, he said, Agathon, do not do that. And so the thought was still. Likewise, Abba Theodore and Abba Lucius spent 50 years mocking their temptations by saying to the thought of leaving the place of their asceticism, After this winter we will leave here. When the summer came, they said, After the summer we will go away from here. Thus they passed the whole time and mocked the demons. Postponing the time of satisfying a thought helps us to be rid of it. Another way of healing in this struggle not to let thoughts is is to not let thoughts persist. The struggle lies in not letting a simple thought stir passion and not letting a passionate thought be given assent. Both these two forms of counterattack prevent the thoughts themselves from persisting. For a thought which persists will engender other thoughts and create many problems in the inner world and will take our noose an unwitting captive. Likewise, we should not let the simple thought become a compound or passionate thought, but also a compound thought should be turned into a simple one. A compound thought is composed of passion and a conceptual image. It will be necessary with self-control and spiritual love to separate the passion from the conceptual image, and then the thought will become simple. Since an intrusive thought tries to kindle sensual pleasure, which will then take the noose captive, the noose must cut off the intended pleasure. St. Maximus teaches that we must become murderers not only of bodily passions, but also of the soul's impassioned thoughts. Apart from cutting off and scorning thoughts, it is necessary to chase them away, and this is done mainly by prayer. St. Gregory of Sinai teaches that a beginner cannot chase away a thought unless God does it. The strong can wage war with thoughts and chase them away, while again even they do it with God's help. When thoughts come, call to our Lord Jesus often and patiently and they will retreat, for they cannot bear the warmth of heart produced by prayer, and they flee as if scorched by fire. In prayer the name of Jesus is pronounced which flogs the devil, and the presence of divine grace creates warmth of heart. These things burn evil thoughts and drive them out of the noose. If anyone lacks the energy to pray, let him imitate Moses, lift his hands and his eyes to heaven, and then God himself will drive away their thoughts. Just as smoke is dispersed in the air, so evil thoughts are dispersed by the invocation of the name of Christ. We cannot rid ourselves of demonic thoughts by means of human thinking. We must abandon every thought, even if we are wise and rest all our hope in God, saying, Lord, arrange the matter as you wish and as you know. This passage is significant because in time of temptation, many people attempt to confront it with human intelligence. However powerful intelligence is, it cannot be more powerful than the devil's thought. For in the struggle against a thought, we are fighting against the devil and not against a simple thought. Praying with watchfulness and nepsis clears the mind of all images of evil thoughts, and so our mind is made conscious of both the devices of our enemies and the great benefit of prayer and watchfulness. Through prayer, the athlete of the spiritual life is clearly aware of the whole thought, makes a sober study of it, and this way, without having put the thought into action, is aware of its consequences. Therefore, the ascetic who have the ascetics who have practice in the spiritual contest, 
who do not allow the thought to enter them usually know very well the life of the sin and the sinner without having their own personal experience. If the enemy's seed is fire, hope in God through prayer is the water which puts out the fire. Abba John the Dwarf said, I sit in my cell, and I am aware of evil thoughts coming against me, and when I have no more strength against them, I take refuge in God by prayer, and I am saved from the enemy. An effective method of getting rid of thoughts is to confess them to an experienced spiritual father. St. John Cashin says, that just as a snake which is brought from its dark hole into the light makes every effort to escape and to hide itself, so the malicious thoughts that a person brings out into the open by sincere confession seek to depart from him. Nothing so harms a monk and brings such joy to the demons as hiding his thoughts from his spiritual father. In this way, his whole spiritual life is twisted, and he becomes a plaything in the hands of the devil who can do what he likes with him, Therefore, St. John Cashin teaches that nothing leads so surely to salvation as confessing our private thoughts to the most discriminating of the fathers and being guided by them rather than by our own thoughts and judgment. He who conceals his thoughts remains unhealed. Therefore, we must confess the persistent thought, bring it to our spiritual father who has responsibility for our salvation. Any thought that tarries in you and engages you in warfare, reveal to your Abba and he with God's help will heal you. When we seek, excuse me, when we speak of a persistent thought, we mean one that does not go away in spite of our objection, scorn, and prayer, but continues to wage war against us, like the impassioned thought which is united with the passion. St. John of the Latter cites the case of a monk whom he met in a synobium. He had a small book hanging in his belt, and said he wrote his thoughts in it each day and showed them all to his shepherd. The discriminating shepherd can be illiterate according to the world, not knowing the wisdom of the world, but knowing God's wisdom. Abarsenios had the habit of going to ask about his thoughts to a discriminating father who nevertheless was crude, illiterate, and uneducated. Another brother asked him, How is it, Abarsenios, that you, with such a good Latin and Greek education, ask this peasant about your thoughts? He replied, I have indeed been taught Latin and Greek, but I do not know even the alphabet of this peasant. When a person has learnt to open himself to God through his spiritual father and to expose all his wounds created by thoughts and the thoughts themselves, at the same time listen to his advice, he is released from each one, he is inwardly at peace, and he knows what the peace of Christ means. As we confess to our spiritual father, we also ask for his prayer and blessing. St. John Chrysostom referring to Christ's words to his apostles when they were entering a house to give peace, says that often without anyone disturbing us, we are at war in thought and are agitated, and cunning desires rise up in arms. This battle sends down the word of the saints, that is the saints' blessing, and this brings much calm within us. At that utterance, every diabolical desire and unseemly thought slipped away from our soul. As we have emphasized in another place as well, we can rid ourselves of of thoughts by cultivating the various virtues. Self-control and love rid us of impassioned thoughts. By controlling anger and desire, we quickly do away with evil thoughts. Vigils also contribute a great deal. The vigilant monk is a fisher of thoughts, and in the quiet of the night, he can easily observe and catch them. The reading of God's law, the lives of the saints cut off thoughts. Therefore, the words of the apostles and fathers, as well as their lives, have much power and give peace to the soul. Another way is to create good thoughts. Indeed, we have previously observed that we 
must cut off and cast away every thought, even if it is a good one, especially at the time of prayer. But at other times, particularly when we are at the beginning of the spiritual life, we can cultivate good thoughts. But again, we need to be watchful not to cultivate fantasy through them, because in that way we would develop a demonic type of spirituality. Cultivate good thoughts with care so that you will find them again hereafter. Let us receive everything with a good thought. Even if everything is ugly, let us receive it with equanimity, and then God will right the anomalies of things. Accept with equanimity the intermingling of good and evil, and then God will resolve all inequality. Or yet, let us transform the evil thoughts into good ones. One of the best ways of curing and disposing of thoughts is to keep our noose in hell, burning with the flames of the inferno. St. Siloan taught, St. Macarius the Great, flying through space, never ceased humbling himself, and when devils, outdistanced, cried to him from afar that he had escaped them, he replied that he had not yet evaded them. He answered after this fashion because he was accustomed to, to stay his mind in hell, and thereby really did elude the devils. St. Piman the Great, schooled by long experience of battle against devils, knowing that far the most dangerous and powerful enemy is pride, fought all his life to acquire humility, and so said to his disciples, Be assured, children, that where Satan is, there am I also. But at the bottom of his heart, knowing how good and merciful is the Lord, he trusted that he would save him. To humble oneself in this wise is the best means of keeping one's mind pure from every passionate thought. For a person to keep his mind in hell, and for all his thoughts to be burnt by the flames of hell, is a state which is imbued with with repentance, and especially with the great and ardent repentance, which is a gift of the grace of Christ. If this is not present, at least a person should hold in remembrance the thought of impending death and his judgment in hell. This thought is enough to purify the noose and release the person from the tyranny of thoughts. When a person is freed by this whole ascetic method from the tyranny of thoughts, and both noose and heart are pure, then he is filled with the energy of the Holy Spirit and experiences the healing of his soul. The soul is freed from all its wounds and becomes a temple of the Holy Spirit, a temple of the Holy Trinity. The person becomes a true priest of the grace of Christ, the grace of God, and has a foretaste of good things of the kingdom of heaven. This is the true natural man, the man made divine by grace. End of, end of chapter 3.